This coverage is live and uncensored, so if you have any small children present, you may want to have them leave the room. Welcome to My Take Radio, episode 93 for Thursday, May 26, 2011. What you just heard was the TNA version of Macho Man's Pomp and Circumstance in memory of the late Macho Man Randy Savage. Um, You can get that from probably uh, TNA's website or probably from iTunes. If you would like the original Pomp and Circumstance, I'm sure you guys know where to find it. Just before getting into anything, I definitely would like to extend my condolences to the family of Macho Man Randy Savage. Uh, Macho Man was a huge inspiration as a wrestling fan when I was growing up. Him, Hulk Hogan, those are those are the almost like the the triad of guys who I was a fan of when I was a kid. Or the third being Jake the Snake Roberts. Ultimate Warrior, I was always kind of iffy about, but those three guys were were the triad for for my childhood at least. So I, you know. Hearing that he passed away was a bit of a bummer. Um, With that said, let's get into some housekeeping. Of course, there's been some a a couple of new posts this week, especially now that our computer systems are up and running at at full capacity. So happy about it. I finally um, imaged my computer to a new drive, and everything is working well. I am very happy with that. And I think that it's a step in the right direction in terms of now I have a full understanding of protecting my computer system. So definitely happy about that. We have some coverage from the New York Comic Con, which I'll talk about in the opening monologue. In addition to that, there's um, a couple of movie posts and some video game posts. Slick also has some great content in there as well. He's working on a review for Pirates of the Caribbean, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, Just a ton of stuff. Now that we're fully operational, there will be a a huge turnout of traffic in the coming days. Um, A couple of MTR Rewind posts as well, and some other articles relating to some event coverage that we've done. So be on the lookout for that stuff. Our Facebook fan page, we are almost at 1,000 fans. We are about 17 or 18 fans away from 1,000 and just in time, right before our 100th episode, I think that will be a great gift to reach a 1,000 fans. Just want to say to the 982 of you guys that are fans of the show on Facebook, thank you very much. Thank you guys for all your continued support, and we're going to try and give you the best three hours of radio every Thursday. Um, I actually was asked this week about the possibility of doing more than one show a week. Uh, might be something that I will look into possibly after our 100th show. I mean, there's some bonus content coming up, which might as well elaborate on now. It's going to be our new interview series called My MTR Behind the Mic or My Take Radio Behind the Mic. Our first interview was conducted yesterday with Michael Manna. Those of you that are wrestling fans may be familiar with Michael's work as Stevie Richards, Dr. Stevie, Stevie Cool. So he actually was a, a great interview. We talked more about technology and gaming than about his wrestling career, only because 
that's just only a small facet of of what Michael's involved in and his his uh T four show which broadcasts live Wednesdays is remarkably well done. It's brilliant and it was just great talking to him and exchanging ideas from a technology standpoint. So I was very impressed with that to say the least. Um one thing that um that I wanna do going forward is provide the people that own our apps more exclusive content. I feel I've kind of been slacking on that, so you guys are definitely going to get the opportunity to get all those exclusives going forward, especially with our um, MTR Unmasked, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, One thing I do have to say, though, is, um, you know, in, in doing these smaller projects to go with the app, especially, you know, with the Minority Film Report, and even with the new behind the mic series, there's less of a margin for error. You're going to see a lot, uh, a a huge improvement in audio quality only because I'm not under the stress of dealing with blog talk radio. So with that said, I'm, I'm very happy for some of those projects. So be on the lookout app owners. And if you are getting the show from iTunes, you'll be able to get access to that stuff as well. Got to throw a quick shout out to our content partners this week in wrestling's podcast and MMA valor MMA Valor will actually be embarking on a podcast of his own, which I believe will hit the airwaves tomorrow or the day after. I got to get some final details from him, so be on the lookout for that. And, of course, we'll make sure to mention it here on air just because MMA Valor's uh, a great partner and they share great content with us, so congrats to them. And I'm looking forward to actually hearing some of their shows as well. Get Glue has been very beneficial thus far. It's given me a, a great gauge to see who's listening to the show for people that are checking in. I've also been in communication with Get Glue to fix our how we're categorized on the Get Glue service, and I'm also working on possibly creating some stickers for you guys. So when you guys check in, there's actually some incentives, you know, some different kinds of stickers and stuff. Maybe a Black Rage sticker, maybe a Brown Rage sticker. I'm I'm sure those of you that have listened to the show a long time would laugh if you checked into a show and got a black rage sticker. And I actually have a design in place for that. So be on the lookout for that in the coming weeks and our t-shirts will be making their return hopefully by next month, just in time for our 100th episode. So total, total amount of great things coming for us is huge. I'm very happy. Like I said, just it's, it's baby steps and it's, a little stressful, definitely a little stressful, and, and I'll go into that also in the monologue. Our guest this week is going to be Jeff Katz, who is involved not only with Geek Week Online, but is working on the first crowdsourced wrestling promotion uh, via Kickstarter. Uh, the man is a visionary, and he really has challenged wrestling fans to put their money where their mouths are with regards to our just – our dissatisfaction with the current wrestling product. I know a lot of you guys, myself included, we have a lot of negative things to say about wrestling, and it's only because some of it is just common sense stuff that can be done better. Unfortunately, it's not the case, and we're treated to seeing some real piss-poor stuff going on, whether it's backstage segments or really shitty angles. And Mr. Katz is working on something remarkable and I want to definitely share with you guys the the details of the project. 
you can actually contribute as little as a dollar to help revolutionize wrestling. He has such a great model laid out, and when he calls in at 11.30, we'll, we'll be able to discuss it further. So I'm super excited about that. Next week, June 2nd, I will be joined by stand-up comedian and mixed martial arts fan Robert Kelly. For those of you that listen to the Opie and Anthony show, uh, Bob Kelly's been on ONA. A lot of times he also tours with Dane Cook, and he's also been in a couple of movies as well. So it should be an exciting show. We'll talk some MMA. I'm sure he's going to have some really great uh, stories about being a comedian, which I'm sure a lot of you guys will enjoy as well. I will tell you guys that it's going to be a definitely a more edgy show in in regards to some of the stuff that's discussed. So just want to give you guys the heads up before that happens. In addition to that, we'll be talking about this week's episode of Monday Night Raw, including my thoughts on the karma situation and how that's going to unfold and a couple of other things as well. We'll be taking your calls. We got our movie news as always. There are a couple of things in there that need to be discussed and our video game news. All I got to say is new Sony console possibly in development. That's all I'm going to say. That's the teaser for the game segment. And with that, let's get into this week's monologue. And I'm going to give you guys a a couple of things. I'm going to jump around a little bit, so I apologize. Um, This past weekend, we got the opportunity to attend the Big Apple Comic Con, sponsored by Wizard World. Um, It was a a great event at the Penn Plaza Pavilion on uh, 33rd and 7th across the street from Madison Square Garden. Um, We got there bright and early, slick, Andrea and I, and... um, you know, we we got access to the show floor very early. We met so many creative and talented artists there that had just so much so much talent that just goes unnoticed in the comic book industry. I saw a guy, um, Tim Smith, who was who does Street Fighter art amongst other things, but the pieces that he was selling were were Street Fighter pieces, and they were fantastic. And I actually ended up buying a Ken and Ryu art piece from him. Dan Canna, who does uh, Transformers artwork, I bought a uh, an awesome piece of art with Soundwave and all his cassette minions because I'm a huge Soundwave fan. It was just really great, and we enjoyed ourselves greatly. In terms of the celebs that were there, uh, Morena Baccarin was there from V and Firefly, Christana Loken, Tom Felton, who you may know as Draco Malfoy, um, the little boy from Walking Dead whose name I, escapes me right now. Um, just a, a great vibe. Uh, the crew at Wizard World were very welcoming. Jerry Milani got us all in uh, for, for press coverage, so I was very happy with that. And I didn't get the opportunity to have myself Simpsonized, which is one of the things I wanted. The uh, artist for The Simpsons was there, and I actually wanted to get myself Simpsonized with a microphone and stuff, but the line was way too long. And um, Slick just reminded me that the young boy from The Walking Dead was Chandler Riggs. So he was also there. The line, of course, was very long for Draco Malfoy. Uh, A lot of Harry Potter fans were there. Some really great costumes. One of the first costumes we got to see was a uh, a very well-done cami from Street Fighter, which was fantastic. And also we got to see a Big Daddy, which I took a picture of from Bioshock, and a couple of other cool costumes. There was a... um, a really good Nightcrawler that was there, and a real sick Bumblebee costume from the new Transformers film. You can check out those pictures on our Facebook fan page, uh, facebook.com slash MyTakeRadio for that. 
And hopefully we'll be talking to the president of Wizard, Garib Sheamus, in June, just in time for the next Wizard World show, which I believe is going to be in Philly. So be on the lookout for that. A couple of other things I just wanted to get off my chest. Um, This week, as a matter of fact, yesterday, um, I had someone crash into me at a red light, which was equally rage-inducing for a multitude of reasons. Number one, I was completely stopped. Number two... Uh, the guy had a kid in the car, and when he rear-ended my car, I hopped out, and of course, my first question was, you know, what the fuck is your problem? And, you know, typical rage-induced self that I was, you know, I said a couple of things, and then I noticed he had the kid in the car, and he was like, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, my my kid distracted me, blah, blah, blah. And, And the funny thing that just, I was too busy being angry at the fact that I got rear ended at a red light. And not angry at the fact that he fucked up my rear bumper, which he did. And um, when I finally looked at that, let's just say the rage reached a, an extra level of foulness to the point where I actually ended up confiscating the guy's insurance card and um, getting all his contact information because I decided to settle without calling the cops just because, A, they would take too long and I had to do the Stevie Richards interview, B, I didn't want the shit on my insurance because insurance companies drop you at the drop of a hat here in New York. And C, it was it, it was just going to be a pain in the ass. So it was a um, an interesting an interesting day yesterday. But me and the guy settled up. Car's going to get fixed, and um, that actually gets me into something which I noticed as I drove down uh, Stewart Avenue, which is where the accident happened. Was all the stuff out? for Memorial Day, which is fine. I I respect the people that decorate their houses for Memorial Day, especially those that have family members in the service. But I think that the fake patriotism of Memorial Day sometimes goes really unnoticed. And for some reason, I think it was just the rage-induced stupor I was in. I did notice that, and I was like, you know, a lot of these fucking people are too busy celebrating that they don't have work or it's the start of barbecue season to really – uh, take the time to acknowledge what it's all about. And, you know, it's, you know, it, taking a moment to reflect on the memories of those that have sacrificed their lives for our country. Uh, those guys, regardless of your belief system, um, fought for our freedoms. They allow me to sit here and talk shit to you guys three hours a day. I mean, three hours every Thursday. So I just felt that that level of phony ass patriotism that I see where people, you know, they're walking around and, acknowledging that it's barbecue season and not really taking the time to remember what the holiday is really about. It's just really fucked up. So for some reason, it just weighed on my mind heavily. I don't know why. Like I said, I think I was just particularly angry. But I don't know. I think Memorial Day, don't get me wrong, it's great. It's a day off. But, you know, I do remember those that sacrificed. You know, I know I have a lot of people I know that are in the armed forces. I know people that have served um, at various capacities. And it's 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 a hard day for some people because some people you know they they lost uh, family members during the, this conflict in Afghanistan during this conflict in Iraq so I'm sure they're not going to sit there and um, look at it as oh my God it's a day off and we get to barbecue I think that they're actually sitting there to reflect and I just wanted to put that out there because I know some people just really don't give a fuck and they should because it's those sacrifices that allow us to do the shit that we do now but. That's pretty much my take on that. Let's get into some MMA before Jeff calls. There's a couple of things I want to discuss. 
especially because it's fight week with UFC 130 this week. So with that, let us get right into the MMA segment. We got UFC 130 this Saturday, which I've been on the fence about ordering for a bit. Actually, is it UFC 130? I think it is. I'm a little, I'm a little messed up. My notes are yes, it is UFC 130, which was a, which was originally supposed to be Frankie Edgar versus Gray Maynard three. Unfortunately, that turned out to not be the case. So the main event now is going to be Quentin Rampage Jackson and Matt Hamill, and the co-main event is going to be Frank Mir and Roy Nelson. Also on the card, you have Stefan Struve and Travis Brown, Tiago Alves and Rick Story, Brian Stan and Jorge Santiago. On the Spike TV card, you got Miguel Torres and Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson, Kendall Grove and Tim Bocek on the Spike card. On the Facebook card, you got Gleason Tebow and Rafael Oliveira, Michael McDonald and uh, Chris Carriso and uh, Renan Barrao and Cole Escovedo are on your Facebook fight card. A lot of people aren't feeling this card just because they feel that it's not worth 60 bucks, and that's up for debate. Some people may, may agree or disagree with regards to that, but I think that, you know, it is what it is. You, you take it for what it's worth, and um, I think that if you're going to purchase it, purchase it. If you're not and you're going to pass, don't, don't shit on it too badly. Me personally, I... I, like I said, I may purchase it just because I'm, I'm a huge fan of Rampage, and I think this fight with Hamill is going to be very interesting. Matt Hamill is a an extremely talented, high-level wrestler, and Rampage is in a weird place. He's kind of motivated to fight, but not motivated. There's been questions about how he's, uh, how he's approaching this fight, if he's taking it serious or not. And the problem is that, for me, since I'm such a huge Rampage fan, I kind of see past all that shit and just really want to see pride fighting rampage you know the rampage that had no problem dropping a guy on his head that's the rampage i want to see i i feel that his performances have been i don't want to say mediocre because like i said i'm a fan but they just haven't been a rampage that i'm used to seeing i mean when rampage came on the scene in the ufc it was crazy you were expecting you know slams and people getting dropped on their fucking head there was such a a, a level of 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 expectation for him that not to say that he hasn't met it because his fighting style has changed a bit, but I don't know. It's just I think it's it's part partly it's the it's the the opponents he's had. I don't know if stylistically they just work well. I think that with Matt Hamill we may see a little bit more of Rampage's ground game on display. Super excited to see that. Frank Mir and Roy Nelson is is a is a huge, huge fight to watch in the heavyweight division only because Roy Nelson is a guy that he's had solid performances. He's got knockout power. He has a very underutilized but very good uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu background. He has the potential to go in there and take out Frank Mir on his feet. But not only that, he has the tools to possibly submit Frank Mir. Frank Mir, of course, is no slouch on the ground. He has great stand-up power. And frankly, me personally, I see this fight as somebody – so one of these guys is definitely going into title contention sooner rather than later. 
I think that um, one thing I have to be I have to be completely honest with is the fact that you know Frank Mir allegedly didn't want to take this fight with Roy Nelson, and I think um, it's his, it's in his interest to to take this fight. And again, this is just my personal opinion, only because Roy Nelson is a guy that's really not being taken seriously, and it's and it's shitty. Don't let his doughboy physique fool you, because he will fuck you up, plain and simple. The guy has has great great hands and a great Brazilian jiu-jitsu background. And not only that, but like I said, he, in, in previous installments of MTR, he knows how to use his girth as a weapon. He knows how to take it to the ground and smother you with his girth. He also knows how to put that girth behind his punches. That's one of the reasons why his knockout power is... Is, is so well known. Same, it's like almost looking at a guy like Tank Abbott way back in the day uh, in the old UFC cards. Tank Abbott, you'd look at him, you'd be like, oh, this guy's a fucking schlub. But Tank Abbott, his hand connected to your face, you were going to sleep, period. And the funny thing is that the fight with Junior Dos Santos and Big Country, which I'm glad De Silva referenced in the chat, was a great indicator of the toughness of Roy Nelson because Junior Dos Santos has serious knockout power as well, and he couldn't even put Big Country to sleep. So I think that this is a fight that's going to push Big Country to that upper level and possibly get him in title contention. So my casual pick is going to be Roy Nelson for sure. Stefan Struve and Travis Brown is also a great fight on the heavyweight side of things, up-and-coming heavyweights. Stefan Struve gets better with every fight. He's a guy you need to keep your eye on for sure. And I definitely think within the next two or three years, you'll see him in the upper card of the heavyweight division. Tiago Alves and Rick Story, I'm a huge Tiago Alves fan. Tiago Alves, he's had a couple of, of battles with um, cutting weight, but his work with Mike Dolce and the Dolce diet have improved his weight cutting, have improved his conditioning. And I definitely think that Tiago Alves is going to come in there and make a statement with Rick Story. Brian Stan and Jorge Santiago, is is another enjoyable fight. I was looking forward to seeing Brian Stan and Lieben, but Vanderlei Silva and Lieben is a lot better in my book, so it's all right. I'll take what I can get. On the Spike TV side of things, Miguel Angel Torres and Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson is going to be an exciting bantamweight fight, and it's a fight that if you blink, somebody's going to sleep, so definitely excited that that's going to be on free TV. And Kendall Grove is always exciting to watch. He's he's always He's ever improving on the ground and on his feet, and you never know with Kendall. It's always a mixed bag. But it, it, whenever he fights, it's always exciting to watch. And on the preliminary side of things, on Facebook, uh, the Glayson T-Bow fight, I'm excited for. And also Michael McDonald. Um, is There's a lot of talk about this kid at Bantamweight. And I'm going to definitely tune in to uh, Facebook.com slash UFC to check that out. And that's going to be this Saturday. And it's going to be starting at 9 p.m. Remember, pay-per-view start at 9 p.m. now and you'll be able to catch those fights on Spike TV and Facebook. In some other news, this weekend, um, I believe it's tomorrow night, early Saturday morning, you're going to see the Golden Glory United Glory card on HDNet. I recommend that if you have not seen Japanese MMA, you definitely check it out for sure, only because the funny thing is Japanese MMA and MMA here in the States while it is the same in many respects, the level of action and the, and, the, and the significant tweaks to the rules sometimes make for far more exciting fights. Uh, Golden Glory, their camp, 
have has serious heavy hitters in there. Uh, you got CR the Killer in there, uh, Alistair Overeem, Marlos Kunin. Just uh, there's a ton of talented fighters out of the Golden Glory camp, so I recommend you check it out. And you can check it out on HDNet and on YouTube pay-per-view as well. All these Japanese and and non-U.S. MMA organizations, um, including M1 Global, are, are just putting on epic cards. And also, Dream 17 is going to be happening uh, this weekend as well in Japan. And Dream puts on always super exciting fights. The main event is going to be Shinya Aoki and Rich Clemente for Dream 17, the fight for Japan. And that's probably going to air on HDNet at some point as well. And man, are there going to be some great fights there. I, I seriously cannot stress that you YouTube Shinya Aoki's fights, um, C, uh, CR the Killer, um, Badahari. Let me tell you something. If you've never seen a violent knockout, I mean, you can see knockouts in the UFC, which are violent, but you need to see fights from Badahari. And um, if De Silva can do me a solid and uh, throw up a Badahari knockout, in the uh, chat room, I'm sure that people will enjoy it and they'll see what I'm talking about. Badahari's a guy that seriously needs to fight here in the United States. The guy is a is a is an animal. This guy is the um the and I'm gonna steal from Bloodstain Lane here, but he used the best description. He is the Mike Tyson of MMA. He he's a young guy. He's just very very volatile. He comes in there and he just delivers disgusting striking where where it's just vicious knockouts where you really feel that the guy that gets knocked out needs last rights because it's it's that serious folks so definitely uh check out some of those japanese fighters but as i was saying dream 17 is this weekend um shinya Aoki and rich clemente are fighting on that card um daisuke nakamura and katsunori kikuno are also fighting on that card kaul ono is as well um the, the, the couple of great fights um at Sushi Yamamoto and uh, Hideo Takoro, those are actually um, bantamweight tournament first round fights. Um, also on that card, you have um, Joaquin Hansen and uh, Mitsuhiro Ishida, which is going to be a, a war in and of itself. I really hope HDNet doesn't wait too long to broadcast this card because it seriously is sick. In some UFC news, the judges will now be have will now be allowed to have monitors in place so that they can judge fights starting with UFC 130. The Nevada State Athletic Commission unanimously approved the UFC's requ- request to have monitors at the show. So that's actually a great step in the right direction in terms of judging. Uh, the monitors will be seven, about seven inches big, and they'll be able to be used in all future events and it will allow the judges to really get a better glimpse of the action. I think one of the reasons that so many of these fights are judged so poorly is because they're monitoring the fight's cage side, and the monitors will allow them to see the different camera angles and see some of the action. It's, it's very important, especially when the fights are on the ground, and especially someone in bottom position who's extremely active and trying to secure submissions. Those are the guys that they definitely need to be seen on monitors only because those are the guys that lose fights even though they're active from bottom position same thing with guys that are there securing chokes and also being active from the top position that sometimes get broken up too early and aren't given a chance and i think that the use of monitors and even instant replay would help make judging in the sport a lot easier
and some other news talking about athletic commissions. Last week I had talked about Chael Sonnen having his license, um, not well, his license unable to be renewed until 2012. As it turns out, the California State Athletic Commission fucked up, and they actually reversed its decision with um, they're actually going with a license revocation, which means that Chael Sonnen can apply for a fight license in the state once his suspension is done June 29th. California State Athletic Commissioner, uh, Athletic Executive Director George Dodd originally stated that the suspension would be treated like a license revocation per the California Code of Regulations. But, of course, they said that the, there were errors in the, in the interpretation of that rule. This is the quote, and I'll share it with you guys. Upon reviewing the May 18, 2011 decision of the commission, an error in the applicability of Rule 399 was made. As such, Chael Sonnen will need to appear before the commission once again if he decides to apply for a license in the state of California. And if the commission denies his application, then he will have to wait for a year from the date of the denial. First off, it's it's really crazy how they just tell this guy, hey, you can't renew your license till next year, and all of a sudden they flip the script. And they're like, yeah, you know, we fucked up. You can apply for a license on the 29th. So I don't have an issue with that. I just think it's a little fucked up that they that they pretty much made this guy probably contemplate retirement based on this on this crazy fuck up, which is is serious. That's for sure. In some other UFC news, UFC 132 has come together very nicely. That's going to be on that's going to be happening in June. The main card is going to have Dominic Cruz against Uriah Faber, as I mentioned earlier, Vandalay Silva and Chris Lieben, Ryan Bader and Tito Ortiz, Carlos Condon and Don Young Kim, and Dennis Seaver versus Matt Wyman. That's on the pay-per-view side of things. On the prelims on Spike, Melvin Gallard will be in action. Uh, as will George Sotaropoulos, their respective opponents. For Gillard, he's going to lock up with uh, Shane Royer, and Rafael Dos Anjos is going to be fighting George Sotaropoulos. On the prelims, which will probably be on Spike TV, I mean on Facebook, you got Brian Bowles and Takeya Mitsugaki, which I'm surprised did not make the Spike TV card. Jason Mayhem Miller and Aaron Simpson, again, shocked. Mayhem didn't get on, on, the, on the prelims on Spike because it's fucking Mayhem. Um, Anthony and Joquani and Andre Winner and also Eric Koch and Cub Swanson are on the prelim on the prelims for Facebook. So be on the lookout for that in June. Got to announce a, ret- a retirement and a couple of news from across the pond. Uh, Marillo Ninja Hua, brother of Shogun Hua, announced his retirement from MMA. Uh, Ninja suffered a knockout loss to Tom Watson in the main event for Bama Six uh, last Saturday and announced his retirement shortly after the show. Also on that card, Frank Trigg scored a first-round TKO of John Phillips. The fight was stopped at about 2 minutes and 41 seconds of the first round due to heavy bleeding. Also, Ivan Salivari uh, lost his match with Matt Ewan via unanimous decision. In some other news, Mamed uh, Kaladov defeated Matt Lindland via submission in 45 seconds from from KSW 16 in Poland. I honestly, and it's terrible of me to say, but I think Matt Lindland needs to needs to definitely um, retire. I think uh, I may have fucked up and said that Shogun retired. Shogun did not retire. It was Ninja that retired. And um, 
the last bit of news out of that KSW event was James Colossus Thompson was fighting Marius Pujanovsky, and Pujanovsky, who you may know as one of the world's strongest man competitors, ended up losing the fight via submission with an arm triangle choke. I've just been notified by Slick that Jeff is here, and I am going to bring him on right now. Jeff, how's it going? Good, man. How's it going? Can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. I hear you perfectly clear. Thanks for Terrific. taking the opportunity to call in. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. I'm happy just to get to use my Skype headset. I never get to use this thing. This is. Uh, I'm glad it's working. Oh, good. Yeah, you sound perfectly clear, man. And um, right off the bat, I uh, just want you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I know that you've been involved in wrestling. You've been involved in comics. You've been involved in all the stuff I'm a fan of, but I'd rather the listeners hear it from you and you give a little bit of background about yourself. Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I've had sort of an odd career. I think that that's fair to say. Uh, probably the uh, biggest thing on my end, I was a, a vice president uh, of production at New Line Cinema, later 20th Century Fox. Uh, did a bunch of not particularly classy movies, but ultimately I think uh, OK Popcorn Fair, stuff like Freddy vs. Jason, Snakes on a Plane, Shoot 'Em Up, Wolverine. Uh, wrote some comics, uh, wrote a book called Booster Gold for DC Comics. Uh, Freddie Jason Ash for uh, uh, Dynamite and Wildstorm, a uh, book uh, called Crosshair uh, for Top Cow that's currently in development at Summit, home of the Twilight series, uh, and sort of did that. Uh, that's probably my most notable stuff. But prior to that, uh, probably most most uh, relative to this show, uh, I spent three years as a teenager from 17 to 20 uh, working for a company uh, that, uh, known as World Championship Wrestling. Of course, uh, the, the famous WCW right in the height of the Monday Night Wars, which as a teenager was a pretty uh, awesome experience to sort of get thrown right into the middle uh, of. So that's probably the quick version of my career in a nutshell. Well, you know what's funny? You, talk, you mentioned all the... Uh the movies that you made that you classify as popcorn fare. The funny thing is I own all those movies. Those movies are all in my library. Uh, shoot them up as a shoot them up as a guilty pleasure of mine. Snakes on a plane. It's like you can't you can't not love Samuel L. Jackson. So, you know, I I, I had to own that. So it's uh, funny you mentioned that and some of the comics that you've been involved in I've read as well, including Crosshair. Oh. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's you know it's weird. And I said this. I actually told this story to someone the, uh, an interview the other day. Uh, when I used to watch WCW when I was a kid, you'd watch WCW Saturday Night, uh, six oh five six oh five Saturdays on TBS. And after the show would get done, and all through the show they'd run promos for this, there was a, a show they did called Movies for Guys Who Like Movies, and it was basically just them doing like real kind of grindhousey B sort of like but guys there and I remember even being told when I worked at WCW um, by I think one of the Turner guys I can't remember who uh, that whenever there was a Braves game getting rained out uh, they would go into a stockpile of movies that were not like high-class movies. They were things like The Beastmaster or Roadhouse. Like, Jaws is probably the classiest thing they had. And these things just would be consistent performers. And it always, it was my taste anyway, and it just sort of stuck. And I, I always tried as an executive to basically make stuff that could run on TBS in that sort of slot in the future. So I always sort of gauge success on these things by are they in college dorm rooms years later? Later. Um, and, you know, the irony is you brought it up. I mean, shoot, shoot 'em Up's my least successful theatrical movie, uh, and it's the one I get from young people probably the most. So, uh, 
So it's I think the nature of cable television and, and DVD even in its dying days. Well, you know that seeing that is 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 something that when you know I I did my my research on all the work you've done, I said to myself, you know, it's crazy the stuff he's been involved in that I like I said that I've seen and even some of the books you've been involved in and also some of the documentaries I saw that you were involved in a. The His Name Was Jason documentary, which I watched and I actually really enjoyed because I'm a huge horror movie buff. Um, Jason, Halloween, uh, Rawhead Rex, uh, any of those old Slumber Party Massacre movies. I love all that stuff. <laughs> Slumber Party Massacre, the only, which I remember the greatest uh, video cover ever of the guy with like the electric guitar with the drill on the end of it. Uh, one One of the all-time, by the way, every movie in that franchise directed by a woman. Oh, what, really? Which is ironic, particularly given the era those movies came out. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I'm I'm shocked to hear that because some of the stuff that was done in that movie was was very was very vicious and very visceral. Well, I mean, look, think of the killer's weapon in and of itself, and the victims were all nubile teenage girls. Um, but yeah, I I love all of that stuff. If basically, if there is a horror movie documentary, chances are I'm popping up in it. So avoid the bio channel in October. Or uh, if you want to, if you, if you don't want to see my face, hey, there's nothing wrong with that, man. I think I think you're doing great work, and I'm. I also know that you're involved with Geek Week Online. I think um, when Geek Week Online first started, I actually was. Well, that was a site I read a lot. But one of the things I try not to do is jump around and, and read too much of other people's work because you know you end up getting inadvertently influenced. And you never want to do that. So, you know, I, I've been following Geek Week casually. I used to follow it hardcore when you guys first came on the scene. Cool. Uh, how, uh, how dare you? How dare you leave us? No, of course. <laughs> it's, it's human human nature for that stuff to happen. And uh, that's you got you got to work in your comfort level. So I, I take no issue with it. That's totally cool. Oh, yeah, I know. You know, I, uh, trust me, I keep an eye on you guys for your involvement, you know, with the hurricane who, you know, is on the shelf. I wish him a, a speedy recovery and... You, you know, you guys are doing great work with that, but the the meat and potatoes of you know the, the why I wanted to have you on was about uh, the wrestling revolution and what you're doing with Kickstarter, especially because you know we cover wrestling every week. You know, we talk to guys like like I mentioned in my email, Shad Gaspard, Amazing Red, and you know when we when I've spoken to those guys, we've all discussed our especially me and even some of our fans and some of our staff just the, being disillusioned with the current wrestling product either because from a writing standpoint or not giving certain stars their due. And seeing this new initiative that you're doing, I said, oh, man, I definitely need to talk to him because it's something new and refreshing. And, and my first question I wanted to ask you was, you know, what was the linchpin and the catalyst that made you want to go in this direction? Well, I, I, I had frankly been dissatisfied as a viewer for a while. Um, and understand that sort of as a result of being in my position in terms of Hollywood, I've been able to maintain, I've always maintained my relationships in the wrestling business. I, I've been very vocal and public about the fact that I, the things I learned as a teenager in wrestling in that, particularly in that prime era, uh, I applied when I dropped out of college, uh, to go to work at New Line as an unpaid intern. I had a head start because I had spent three years in that climate. Prior to that, I'd done talk radio, and that was a political climate. You learn from all of these things. And, you know, I think that, that frankly, a lot of the time, if you talk to wrestling fans, most of us watch out of habit. It's like Monday night. That's what we've done for, you know, all these years. And right. it's just sort of what we know. 
And, you know, more often than not, I was finding I was watching these shows because I've got relationships with people in all these companies. Um, and, and, you know, it was, okay, I want to see what my friends are doing. All right, let's see what this is. But the passion just, it, I, I felt it sort of seeping away. And really, it was a combination, ultimately, for me, where, you know, and, and frankly, look, I've spent over the years, even in Hollywood, the running joke was uh, that I was going to take a year off at some point and go to WWE and be an evil Hollywood manager. Like, that was the gag when I was an executive. So it's I've never hidden my love for the business. I had the flair belt and the Hogan belt in my office at Fox as an example. And I, I, I think realistically, WrestleMania comes and goes this year, and it sort of crystallized for me all the dissatisfaction that I was feeling. Um, it was the first year, you know, I had a bunch of friends over to watch the show and everything, and Triple H Undertaker was a very good match. But it's the first year where I felt ripped off when I got my bill. And yep. it caused me to really start thinking about this stuff. And then they had the episode of Raw with The Rock's birthday. And i got to be honest with you, that was one of the worst episodes ever. Um, I just didn't see who it helped other than The Rock, who's the last guy that needs the help, and I didn't think it was particularly well done and, and whatever. Um, and then obviously you had Christian Gate on top of it. And I just, just think finally these things just sort of put into focus uh, my my dissatisfaction, but also really in the middle of a Twitter conversation is where this sort of came out of. Uh, there were a lot of people voicing their general dissatisfaction. And I think really... What it comes down to more than anything else is, and we're always going to have things, every week promotions will do something to piss you off. It's, it's the nature of the beast. But it really yes. comes down to a very simple thing. I think you, you, you struck, spoke to it earlier. The model itself hasn't changed since the Monday Night Wars. And nope. the WWE television model basically is the same form of presentation that it's been for well over a decade. The TNA television model, and I've got friends that work there as well, and I like those guys, but it's basically the WWE television model. And I think that the way that people consume content has changed so fundamentally uh, that we're at this sort of unique moment where the audience has maybe outgrown the model at a certain level. And the reason I say that is, and I'm going I'm to relate it back to my time as a studio executive, and even when you're breaking a comic, it's, it's the same principle. Storytelling, I don't care what the medium is, is defined by this crazy concept called three-act structure. Uh, act one, act two, act three, put more simply, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And yep. the WWE, I'm sorry, go ahead, I apologize, go for it. No, no, no. What I was going to say is you're 100% right. It's almost like it's become a never-ending cycle of story. That, that, that's right. The and no end. That's right. And so if you let's look at WrestleMania as an example. When I was a kid and I fell in love with wrestling, WrestleMania was the, the top of the mountain. Okay, It was the turning of the page. It was you were going to close the go to the next chapter. And uh, it was where, you know, feuds paid off and, and big turns happened and new things were created. And if you look at this year, I mean, you had Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler fighting three pay-per-views after the fact. Uh, you still had Miz and Cena, I think, three pay-per-views after the fact as well. And it just, by the nature of the beast that they have to feed, uh, it doesn't lend itself to telling a complete story. And the example I always use for people is, let's look back over the past year, um, 
to the angle where the Nexus beat down Vince McMahon and put him in a coma. I would ask you, you're, you're a big fan, what was the payoff to that? There was no payoff because Vince didn't even come back to get revenge besides the fact that there was a gaping plot hole right. with the, the, the mind behind the Nexus, the higher power behind the Nexus, which we never knew about. That's ever. right. <laughs> and I would I would simply ask you that, you know, as wrestling fans, I think, as I said, we watch this stuff out of habit more often than not. I'm gonna. What's your favorite TV show that's a scripted television show? Give me one or two that you like. Uh, scripted television show. Um, Doesn't have to notice. be great. Just, okay, okay. So Burn Notice is a good example. So if you watch an episode of Burn Notice, and let's say, uh, and this and they're in their what fourth or fifth season at this point, let's say that just in the middle of a season. Bruce Campbell's character disappeared and is never spoken of or referred to, ever, okay? Would you ever accept that from them as a viewer who's invested over four or five seasons? Absolutely not, especially if it's a character that you're a fan of. And, you know, Bruce Campbell's character is a great character that you reference because he stands out. You pluck him out. It, it's, it's huge because it's like, wait a minute, where's, you know, where's, where's Sam? Where's that character? So you are right. And And so... They do this a lot, and wrestling does this a lot. And it frustrates me as a guy who, look, I think my philosophy in storytelling is that it, it's, again, a three-act structure, obviously, but setups and payoffs. That's what great storytelling is. And a, a match in and of itself is three-act structure when it's done right. And, and I just see it being lost in a way where we're chasing the, whatever you want to call it, the crash TV model or whatever, the, you know, pick, pick your term from that era, the, the the presentation simply hasn't evolved. Uh, and so I simply, in, in the midst of this conversation on Twitter, sort of put out there, and I think, again, another factor we got to look at here is the cost of these shows, how many of these shows there are, and also the fact that a significant portion of the audience does not pay for these shows anymore. They, they pirate them and watch them online. It became this sort of philosophical debate, and I basically posited to people, are there 100,000 of you that are willing to spend $1 a piece to sort of make a point and try and do something different. And if there are, I'll step up. I have, you know, this is something I've thought of for a long time of doing. Um, and more importantly, I've got 15 years of relationships that I've built in both wrestling and Hollywood. And I will open up my Rolodex uh, to that. There's no point in having a Rolodex if you don't use it at the end of the day. Uh, and so... Uh, it just sort of crystallized, and the wrestling revolution of it all came from some other guy on Twitter started the hashtag to keep the conversation going, and it just sort of snowballed, and we find ourselves here 20 days in. We've raised over $40,000, so we're over 40% to our goal. Uh, we have until, I believe, August 4th, and, and I think it's, at the very minimum, a, a great social experiment, but I would also say to you that I don't intend on not hitting the number. I, I'm going to hustle until I figure out a way to do it. I, I'm taking very much the attitude that I'm going off and I'm making an indie film to a large level. And that, you know, in, in looking at it that way, it's a, it's a great model to use, and, and that's one thing, our, you know, and I, and I want to tell my audience that, that, that are listening you guys are very vocal about the wrestling community. You guys bitch when things go wrong. You guys express satisfaction when things go right. You know, why not, why not invest that dollar and, and see it at work? Because the model that you have is great because in, in doing seasons and doing it episodic, you know that you have to make sure to see the payoff at the end of the 12th episode. You know right, what look, I mean? We let's, don't that. Oh, go on, I'm sorry. 
No, I was going to say, you know, we don't get that now because what happens is just like what happened with WrestleMania, it wasn't a definitive end. It was like, all right, you paid $60 to watch the Roxena-Miz altercation conclude, yet it continued for four more weeks preceding. So you paid 70 bucks for a pay-per-view that really had no end. It's like right, watching credits. Like would... credits for... Oh, God, I'm sorry. No, what I was going to say is it's like watching an endless string of credits. Yeah, look, take it a step further. If you just bought WrestleMania and you paid $65 for it, and then the next night on Raw they announced the main event for next year, which is a really much more appetizing main event, it was the match you really wanted for the night before, don't you feel a little burned? And, oh, and I felt burned. It's, it's the cost of these things, I think, ultimately, too. And, and I think that realistically, and I'll speak only the WWE model because they are the number one game in town, uh, I, I personally believe that the product is, to a certain level, uh, overexposed and significantly overpriced. Um, and I say that because I operate in a world where I think you have to look at what I like to call the dollar-to-value proposition. And uh, $55 for uh, over-the-edge or over-the-limit, whatever the last pay-per-view was, that's the cost that I would pay to go pick up a copy of L.A. Noir for Xbox, Okay. And if I'm a kid or I'm a guy who's got, you know, gas is $5 a, a, a gallon and I've got limited disposable income and I'm looking around and I'm going, for my $55, I can get three hours on pay-per-view that's really worth one-time viewing and I might not even get anything delivered on that show. Or I can buy a video game that's going to last me a month plus have downloadable levels plus possibly multiplayer, plus when I'm done with it, I can trade it in for store credit towards another game. That's not a winning proposition. And I'll take you a step further. When Netflix is $7.99 with thousands of hours of content, including WWE content on it, um, the numbers just don't add up. And I think that it's really just at a point in time where the entire model as we know what I think is worth looking at and going, is there another way to do this using economies of scale and the technologies that exist today? Well, that's one thing. That's one thing that I feel they're, they're starting to embrace now, but they haven't grasped the entire concept. I mean, you see WWE now using Twitter. Um, I think that the, the Rock and, and the Rock's involvement kind of put the whole Twitter thing at the forefront only because he referenced Twitter and Facebook on a grand scale during his involvement in the angles. And I think that using those mediums, using things like YouTube, Justin TV, all these avenues, even Kickstarter, are, are, are viable solutions to get better wrestling product out there and not use these ludicrous amounts of money and make people feel ripped off. Well, that's the thing. The way we finance and produce these things has changed and really more importantly the way we consume content has changed and netflix has had a lot to do with that because i think ultimately let's see i'll use burn notice as the example again someone let's say hasn't watched burn notice and you're advocating you're your to your friends you're what they call a curator you're someone whose taste they trust and when you say to them oh you haven't watched burn notice you should really go check it out it's great and for all the reasons why you love it when they go and check it out now chances are they're either getting a complete DVD set from a store, or more likely, Netflix has the entire run, and they're watching all that, or, or frankly, they're going off and bit-torrenting it and getting it for free. But either way, they're consuming it now in a way it might be watched on a laptop, it might be watched on their TV, it might be streamed through their Xbox, any of these options, and they may blitz a season of Burn Notice in a weekend. 
So because we live in this sort of world, I think that there are, are, are interesting ways of exploring the genre of professional wrestling from a storytelling point of view that, that are designed to service that type of content consumer. That, that's what sort of floats my boat. Uh, as I look towards where I think the future of entertainment is going. And again, you know, wrestling's always been an innovator when it comes to this stuff. Uh, why not take a shot at letting it try to innovate again? And, and look, I might suck. We don't know. Maybe I'm shitty. I think I can, I'm pretty confident I can do this and do it well, but, you know, we'll see. But at the, at the minimum, even if I suck and I blow it and we only do one season, the people that contribute and the people that watch, they're going to know they're going to get React structure, a beginning, a middle, and an end to their story, just like they would watching a season of Burn Notice, which I would argue is better than what you get at a storytelling level from WWE now. I, I agree. You know, the funny thing that you mentioned about a beginning, a middle, and an end that I wanted to reference, um, a promotion that doesn't get acknowledged a lot, and that would, that would be Ring of Honor. I uh, had, El, um, El Generico and Kevin Steen. Very good. <laughs> exactly. That, that, ha- that storyline went across an entire year's time, but you knew that the end was coming. You know, you knew when you hit the middle, and you knew that end was going to culminate with something huge, and it did. And that's the, the epic storytelling that, that's just missing, I feel, especially as a wrestling fan, that those days are gone. And, and referencing the late macho man Randy Savage, his program with Hogan when they were the mega powers, you know, that went across multiple television shows, multiple Saturday Night Main events, all the way to a pay-per-view that, that ended with their match at Mania, which was the, the, a fitting way to end it. And you just look forward to that. The same thing with, I've talked with one of our writers, uh, Josh. He says that one thing that doesn't happen anymore is the bad guy getting the upper hand up to the pay-per-view and then possibly the good guy winning. That whole model is just gone. It's, it, it, the Monday Night Wars, by necessity, because of just the nature of the competition, shifted the model. And the, the version you talk about going back to WrestleMania 4 into 5, that was the, the, that was the Vince model really at its best. Uh, and, and I think it's missed, and it's missed very heavily. And, and I agree with you. I think that, the ring, that that Ring of Honor example is one of the few examples we can point to anymore. And how sad is it that that's the exception instead of the rule? Uh, and I would even say to you, imagine if WWE's broadcast season was only November into Survivor Series through WrestleMania. Just imagine how tight and focused that writing could be. That's oh. what I think is interesting about going in this direction. Oh, absolutely. I think that using those, because those were the big pay-per-views, and then that, that's the problem. All these filler pay-per-views that are thrown in are just, in, they're doing more harm than good. It, you know, I, I survive, agree. I agree. Survive SummerSlam and Mania. If you want to throw in there maybe a King of the Ring, which you can use kind of as a fluff piece in between, that's fine. But three big pay-per-views and just episodic TV will make for a more consistently tighter product. I agree with you a thousand percent. Well, the, the also, look, the shows are overpriced, and in the world we live in today with the technology that's there plus the state of the economy – uh, your 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 audience basically demands now that you give them the content when they want it, where they want it, how they want it, at the price point they want it at, or they will find a way to steal it. And just go look on the pirate bay, you know, enter WWE and look at the level of BitTorrenting. Uh, it's out of control. And I think that's in part because most people don't think the pay-per-views are worth the money. Yep. And and they're not and they're not embracing those other avenues. Like one thing I have to throw out there, like I pay per view. You know, you order a pay per view for fifteen bucks, and you know, let's say you order the pay per view and it sucks. 
it's only a fifteen dollar hit versus a fifty dollar hit. That's you right. Know? It's and a it's, movie. It's a movie ticket versus a video game. That's that's the, the issue. Yes, exactly. And you know, one one of the funny things I look at, you know, uh, like uh, like something like Call of Duty Modern Warfare became one of the first billion dollar franchises, and you know, you see. Uh, WWE touting their pay-per-view numbers like yeah you know we did a you know we did a million buys and blah 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 it's like you guys if you guys tighten things up you'd be doing a billion buys and and uh, and you know more revenue if you guys just tightened it up too often more often than not you know the the internet has spoiled the the mystique that there is to wrestling but it's also educated us the fans as to what we're seeing and if you're going to do that don't broadcast your product to somebody with the intention that they're stupid well, I think that there's, frankly, a certain attitude. I, I think I would argue to you that, the, at least in the case of that audience, you're generally taken for granted. They don't think you're going anywhere. Yeah, and, more often than not, and more often than not, you're not. I mean, even the people downloading the shows illegally are downloading it because they want to keep up on the product because they're fans. It's what they've done forever. But uh, I, just, I, I even just think in terms of the tone of how the, show, the shows are written – uh, the sort of intelligence level that's put into it is not where I'd like to see it, and and so I just I I think that there are, it's a perfect storm at a certain level, and we find ourselves in what I would what I would jokingly you know it's been said in politics now we're in a Ross Perot moment I think you could argue we are in an ECW moment simply in the fact that there is dissatisfaction at a lot of levels uh, from from an audience that really has seen. Uh, the bulk of what's been on the marketplace for a while now. Well, you know, it's, in referencing ECW, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Paul Heyman fan, and as an MMA fan, I, I definitely am watching his involvement in in that sport closely. And I think that 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 era of of with ECW was something that, in a way, you have to kind of take a look at because you knew where the stories were beginning and ending. There was no, there wasn't a watered down. Um, uh, mid midpoint to a feud like Sandman and Raven was a great example. Their feud became so personal, so heated, and so bitter that people were salivating to see the payoff. And when it did pay off the way it did, people felt satisfied. Now we just see all these feuds, these these high volume feuds that go on for four weeks. It, you know, and by the time you get to the pay per view, you're just exhausted and you want to see it end. Well, it's look, it all it's all about it comes down to characterization, okay? And what Paul did that was genius, and I've had the luxury of being able to, you know, pick Paul's brain a bit over the years uh and sort of ask him about a bunch of these sort of anecdotes. It, it, you know, the 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 thing that he did was he created characters, oftentimes from guys who were cast-offs or never never going to be's. Uh, that he found something in that those characters were three-dimensional, they were cool, and they were relevant. I think that's been lost to a very large level. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the funnier things you you hear often is when WWE likes to compare themselves. They say, you know, UFC is not our competition, which is a completely r ridiculous statement. Uh, it's cannibalizing your pay-per-view buys. It's your competition. Uh, our competition is scripted television series like Dexter or, or whatever. That's really not the case. Um, because when you look at the characters, let's say that that was accurate. Let's look at the characters that define one-hour drama television over the last decade, okay? They're Tony Soprano, Don Draper, Vic Mackey, Dexter, 
uh, the list of the nip tuck guys, whoever, the list goes on and on. What do these guys all have in common? They're complicated. They're deep. They're three dimensional. They're not even good guys in many cases. Yet you're rooting for them. And there are none of these nuances in the way wrestling television is written. And I don't know that it's possible to do that. And again, I mean this with no disrespect. I I respect what the guy did uh, in his prime. But a 65-year-old guy running creative uh, is going to write in a certain milieu and not really, I think, keep up with the times in that way. And I'm not convinced that the structure is there under him to push him off the mark or else it would have happened by now, I would would argue. Well... With in regards to your 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 wrestling revolution project, one thing I, I I really enjoyed was that you put a lot of emphasis into the writing aspect, and you were saying that you wanted writing to be consistent. Yeah, I just don't believe in sloppy wasted beats. I don't. Uh... I think we let wrestling storytelling get away with stuff we would never accept from other shows. And I used an example in an interview the other day. Did you ever watch The Shield when it was on FX? Absolutely. (laughs) It was a great show. Uh, And Sean Ryan's a terrific writer. uh, I'm a big, big, big fan of what he does. And Sean Ryan did a thing in, like, season three where, and I don't want to spoil it, but Aceveda, who's the captain of the of the precinct, basically uh, has an incident that is a very memorable television moment and a scarring incident for the character, right? Uh, yep. And do you know what I'm talking about? If you saw it, okay, yes, you might man. know what I'm referring to. Uh, gun to the head blowjob, I guess that's all I'll say. Uh, yes. And so... For two seasons after, they never refer to the incident other than these little subtle things. Yet everyone who has watched that show knows that at some point it's going to come back. Chances are Vic Mackey is going to get hold of it, and it's going to be used in a way that is, pardon the terminology given the situation, rather delicious. Okay? You, You have faith in that writer to get you there. I don't believe we have faith in that level of creative when it comes to wrestling anymore, and that that's an earned lack of faith. And I, I would again point to the idea, I did not see the show on Monday, but my understanding is that after all these months and three pay-per-views of fighting, Michael Cole just came out, apologized, and everyone said, no problem, you're forgiven, and it's all good again, right? That's pretty much it. Okay, it's like you- would you... Would you ever see Sean Ryan or any of these Matthew Weiner or David Chase or pick your pick your favorite TV writer ever do that and get away with it? Absolutely not. On the contrary, people would see something like that. It was with the open ending of The Sopranos, even which was left open to interpretation, and the and the and the backlash from that was 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 huge at the time. Right, look at of- the end of Lost, which was hugely criticized. You just would never get away with this. And I think that it, the challenge is at a certain level is, is I, I'll put it to you this way. I use this analogy a lot. I think it applies here. The best animation. Pick your, you know, be it Pixar movies, which are the best developed movies in all of Hollywood, I think, at this point, uh, or The Simpsons in its prime, or South Park, or whatever your, your animation passion is. The best animated series traditionally, or movies, work at two levels. They work at a level that a little kid can watch them, be entertained and get humor out of it, and a very smart level that their parents can also watch and get the same, get their own fun time out of it. I think what's happened now is we're writing to the lowest common denominator. What I'm looking to do with this is go out on a crazy limb, and maybe maybe I'm just nuts, and maybe this is blasphemy, and Rich, you can tell me, but... 
I'm going to go out and try to write a product that expects that my audience is actually somewhat intelligent and informed uh, and not try to speak down to them with poopy or grown men kissing a 65-year-old's naked ass. That's just not what I, uh, what I want to see on my television. That's the stuff that makes me cringe and have to defend to my friends while I watch the stuff. And so I, I guess my attitude is that I'd rather go shoot for this format, fail knowing that even if I fail, I went for something original and my audience gets a complete story in the process, even with failure, and go out to at least try to push the storytelling model to where I would like to see it go as a consumer. Because at this point, I simply don't think anybody's going to push that change. Well, one thing, one thing that I wanted to ask you, and this, this has been consistently happening across the board, when it comes to writing, I always feel that your writers, when you're bringing them in, should have a little bit more knowledge of the wrestling product than just be purely soap opera-based. With regards to your project, how do you feel the concept of writing coming into play? Are you gonna are you gonna seek out writers that that have at least a, a a basic grasp of wrestling, or are you gonna use a mix of the two? Let me ask you a question. In any other business, if you went on a job interview, and let's say you wanted to go and you wanted to be a plumber, okay, all your life. All you want to do, you're actually, you're going to go to the interview to go be the plumber. And you go to the plumbing interview, and the head plumber, the guy, the CEO of the company says to you, uh, do you like plumbing? All right. And you, and you said, uh, yes, I like plumbing. Would you ever have that held against you? Of course not. If you said no, they'd boot you out of the interview. They'd say, why are you wasting my time? So I think you're, you're speaking to a corporate sort of ideology that is comes from the top. That's their business. God bless them. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. I got my internship at New Line that enabled me to go to Hollywood because I'd been writing the head of the studio since I was eight. I became a student of his company, and it's what enabled me to become an executive at a young age. So I don't believe in that. Now, that said, what I think you're going to see me do is a pretty interesting cross-section of talent, guys with wrestling storytelling experience and a lot of guys with Hollywood experience. But all of those guys will be guys who are what I like to call lapsed fans. In all of these cases, these are guys who were big fans at points in time that, got, that went away from it. And for trying to recapture what they loved is what I think has made this interesting to those guys. So I don't, I mean, let me ask you a question. All the Hollywood talent they've brought in over at WWE, has it improved the product? Absolutely not. Because they don't control creative. Creative there is controlled by one guy. One guy has the be oh, all end all. I don't know. Did we lose Jeff? Oh, can you hear me? Okay. Now I can. I had lost there you for go. a second. Sorry about that. All I was saying is that because they don't control creative. Creative is controlled by one guy. Okay, and that guy, and I know this from experience because I've worked for a guy in a similar sort of position. When you're 60 some years old, you've built a company over decades, and you've had a certain way of doing business, you're not going to change the way you do business unless you were forced. WCW ultimately forced him. That's why that happened. But at this point, you're a public company. You've got a machine that rolls around. Uh, it rolls along. Even when your margin has shrunk, they're still doing nicely on the margins. Why would he change? He's not going to. And it's unrealistic to expect him to, unless there's something that forces it. Well, the, the, the funny thing is, and I've read, you know, mixed reviews, but most of it is, is, is pretty true, is the fact that nobody stands there and challenges him on some of these ideas. And I, sometimes I think that, especially when you're, when you're a boss, you 
need to be challenged because anybody who's passionate about getting an idea out there is willing to put their job on the line for it. And I think that one of the problems is a lot of these guys, Vince says no, they back down, and the idea dies on the table. Meanwhile, you know, when I was, uh, when I was reading some of the excerpts from Brock Lesnar's book, you know, Paul Heyman went to bat with Taz to try and make Brock Lesnar's character exactly what we saw. And, and they challenged Vince on it, and it worked. And I think that's part of the th- one of the things that you need for success in terms of, of being a, a, a writer for professional wrestling. You've got to be willing to hang your ass out there in case you're going to fail. Look, it's all about a corporate culture. That comes from the top. That's where that tone is set. Uh, and, and so it's really about the philosophy of the person that runs that creative ship. I grew up in a, in a circumstance, you know, the philosophy at New Line, I was a kid who was an unpaid intern who worked six months, 40 hours a week for free, got my foot in the door and was an executive within a few years. Bob Shea's philosophy was a good idea can come from anywhere. We bought movies from guys who worked in the mailroom. So that is my philosophy, generally speaking. I don't understand the thinking that goes into their decision over there, but I think a lot of it stems simply from Vince's desire. I think at this point it's legacy time, which is very natural, and I don't criticize that. But when it's legacy time, now it's about establishing the Hollywood beachhead, doing the charitable stuff over here. I think the eye is maybe off the ball a little bit. Well, one thing that that I think you know, separates you a lot, which I, which I enjoyed was the fact that you said it's going to be a 12 episode season, which isn't going to burn out your performers. It's going to allow your performing talent to come back fresh and be motivated. And you don't have to worry about oh, this wrestler dropped the ball because he's tired or he's nursing 15 nagging injuries that he doesn't want to give up. So he doesn't lose his spot. I feel that that's definitely important because I remember when they marketed themselves as, you know, our sport doesn't have an off season, but you know what? I'd rather have an off-season and a quality product than no off-season and half of my guys be the walking dead. Well, that's we've just gotten smarter about what this stuff does. That would be like them going around bragging about who had the most concussions. We're just smarter than that now. We know we know what is and isn't is not appropriate. Um, I, I don't disagree, and I think that you've got again you've got to look at the complete model here and go. What are things that we could do to make this better? And, and uh, there's just no incentive there for them to do it. So you can't expect them to do that. Uh, I'm not concerned with that. They're going to operate the way they operate. My ambition is to go off in my corner like I'm doing my own thing, and if I can make things that have some lasting impact, great. And if in the worst case all I do is tell a complete story that stands on its own and can be rediscovered by audiences in this space over time, I'm happy with that. I think, again, the way brands evolve now is so different. I used an example the other day. Um, it's like The Big Lebowski was a movie that made no money at the box office. It was not successful. But because it got discovered on home entertainment, uh, it has now spawned a licensing and merchandising empire that will not stop until the day we die, most likely. So the way people discover things now has just shifted and changed in such a dramatic fashion that going and exploring in these areas, using a genre as sort of classic as what pro wrestling is, is at the minimum fascinating to me and worth the time and effort to try to pull something like this off. One thing I had also been looking at, and, I, and this was a question I had ma- wanted to make sure I had asked you, how do you feel in regards to the to the use of championships for your promotion? Because I honestly feel that with a lot of the storytelling going on nowadays, the value of the championship belt has kind of been watered down, and, you know, every promotion needs a championship how, how do you plan to address that and, and make that title 
valuable in, in the sense that it's something that everybody has to aspire to achieve. I'm, I'm not going to tell you specifically because I have some outside-the-box thoughts in, the, uh, in this area, so I don't want to give that away. But I will say to you very fundamentally, uh, I, I grew up loving wrestling because title belts were important. Championships mattered. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of Puro. I watch a lot of Japanese stuff where, you know, uh, the way they handle their belts, I think, is, is, is deemed with a certain importance that we don't get today. The thing I'll never understand is... This idea that, um, look, audiences have a thing that called a Pavlovian response. You condition an audience, right? Uh, when you hear the glass of Stone Cold Steve Austin's theme drop, you pop because you hear that glass, you know what it means. You hear the opening strains of Real American, you pop because you know Hogan is coming. So when you condition your audience to not think that titles are important and then proceed to market your $55 show around guys fighting for these titles that are not important, I, that, that equation, it's one plus one equals five. It doesn't add up to me. So uh, I'm all for protecting your championships, uh, and I'm gonna, I hate to do this to you. I'm going to be vague here because I think I have some pretty interesting ideas in terms of how to do this. I, um, I, I think it's important. I don't think it's important from a merchandising level. Simply when you look at the, you know, uh, Look at what Aaron Rodgers and, 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 the, and the Packers this year, the Pistons did it when they won in 04. The belts and these things, they mean something culturally now in a way that I'm not sure even you know, Vince and some of these guys realized. Well, one thing that I've always wondered, and, and maybe it may see a place in, in your project, was the use of, of some sort of a ranking system. I think that that would help flesh out stories. I mean, again, this is just my... My, my knowledge coming out and stuff that I've talked about with, with other people that are wrestling fans, but the use of a, of a ranking system, I remember TNA had instituted it and it, and it started kind of fleshing out the stories a lot better. And then like you, like you've always said, you know, there's no mid, there's no middle, there's no end. It just disappears quietly. I think that ranking systems, especially with wrestling, and I've seen it used in Puro to an extent are, are definitely a, a, a must have. It, it helps just add a level of, of, of freshness and a little and a little tinge of realness that that are essential. Well, I'll put it to you this way: uh, wins and losses need to count. That's why I watch, right? I, do you watch? Do you watch exhibition uh, preseason football? Nope. Most people don't. We watch we watch regular season football. Do you like watching spring training games? Maybe you watch one at the beginning because baseball is back, but that's it. So I, I, I'm with you uh, in that regard, and I don't even know that it's as explicit as having to do a complete ranking system as much as it is not letting stuff fall through the cracks so that in the context of your larger narrative, wins and losses count. That's what just gets forgotten. And again, part of that is just the rigors of having to write 52 weeks a year of episodic television. It doesn't lend itself at all to good storytelling. Uh, you know, one, one angle I like to cite a lot, and um, this particular wrestler cited it also, was when Carlito debuted in the WWE in his feud with John Cena. And at one point they did an angle where John Cena got stabbed in a nightclub sure. by, by Carlito. And then about three or four months later, they were in a match together. And I said to myself, so let me get this straight. This guy had this other guy stabbed in a nightclub, and now they're going to be in a tag match together, and no one's going to address this in the least bit. <laughs> and he right. said the same thing on his Twitter. He actually referenced it. 
I think that's dead right. And also, look, if someone's had you stabbed in a nightclub, would you come out and hold a microphone and talk in front of them for 10 minutes and have a debate and exchange it? Or would you go and tackle the dude and try to kick his ass? Exactly. You'd go in there for that tackle and try to kick his ass. Yeah, I think all those – look, I like like wrestling. I'm not looking to change the core of what I like. But a lot of these affectations, I think, just get in the way of logic. And, God, if you give your audience – it's it's no different than horror movie sequels. You're a horror movie fan. You said so. It's like in a horror movie sequel, when they give you the slightest bit of continuity, that's all horror fans want. They want to know that their time on shitty sequel number four wasn't completely wasted because you have a plan. And I just think that that's been, that trust has been so abused. And, and really, this is, it is a trust between a, a, pro, a, a content programmer and a consumer. Uh, and, and the reality is consumers just haven't had anywhere else to go. One thing, one thing that, that's funny about that is that there's so many smaller promotions popping up, you know, Lucha Libre USA, um, Dragon Gate. They're, they're coming into the U.S., even New Japan coming to the U.S. now, and they're bringing all these different fresh approaches. Do you feel that you'll be able to grasp a model that's going to really set itself apart from everybody else? Because the worst thing is that you'd never want to get lost in the shuffle or be considered, you know, WWE light like TNA or... Well, WWE light, I promise you, is not happening. I wouldn't waste my time. Uh... I, I got other stuff I could be doing, frankly. Uh, and in terms of the other guys, I, I, I have friends at a lot of these companies, so I want them all to do well. I'm going to go off in my corner, carve out my own little niche, and hopefully deliver something that finds an audience. And again, even if it takes being discovered on Netflix over time, the way it will be designed is for people to go in and discover it. And, uh, it it's like Spinal Tap, okay? That was something that just grew and evolved over years of cult audience finding and discovering it. And again, it's heavily merchandised. So I'm really not particularly worried about that. Um, wrestling fans want content. They're hungry for content. They just want good content. And I think that the way I'm planning on presenting this will be different enough, even at a cosmetic level, from what those guys do. But I encourage people to support those companies. I don't. I, I, I'll be really frank with you, the stupidest thing I think this business does is they need to get their heads out of the, uh, pardon my French, they need to get their heads out of the fucking carnival, okay? I, I work in the entertainment industry, and in the entertainment industry, I hang out with, exe- when I was an exec at Fox, I hung out with execs from Warner Brothers, Paramount, and Sony all the time. No one gave a shit. And it wasn't like I would walk onto the Paramount lot and go to their executive building and go, what's up, bitches, you want some? That's just not how it works. And I think this idea of promotions all feuding with each other is so archaic. Uh, and it's all in these sort of desperate attempts to relive days that have come and gone. I, I, I'm running an entertainment-based company. I'm going to go off. If people are stupid enough to want to come and fuck with it, that, that speaks more to them than me. I won't stand for it. But I don't understand that thinking. It's completely old-fashioned wrestling to me, and I don't think it has much of a place. And again, to me, it speaks to just sort of how bizarre, uh, and look, we all love it, we're here talking about it, uh, but how bizarre this sort of subculture uh, of this business is. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, as much as they, they want to say they're part of the larger entertainment firmament, it still has, I think, uh, some space to go to get there. Uh, I'm looking to hopefully run this in a way that's a bit more consistent to how uh, the major entertainment production houses and those companies are run than, you know, uh, XPW invading an ECW pay-per-view or any of that kind of stuff. 
Um, are you looking to do something more on a on a cable medium where there's a, a bit more of a looser restriction, or are you going to try and shoot for possibly getting something more on the broadcast side of things? Do you think that the cable is the cable networks are more conducive to this? Um, my attitude is, is, frankly, that you have to be anywhere and everywhere now. I just think that that's the demand of the audience. So if I had my druthers, I'd be going day and date in a variety of mediums, Netflix included. Uh, we'll be making some announcements pretty shortly in terms of our initial distribution partners. We got lucky enough to get approached week one when this thing first popped by a pretty legitimate entertainment distribution company. looks like that's going to probably make, knock on wood, as I probably just cursed it right there by talking about it. But um, I think that ultimately, if I could figure out a way to go and make money going direct to BitTorrent, I would do it. I just, I just think the demands of the audience now are they're going to watch it when they want. It's one of the reasons why like when TNA moved to Mondays to try to take on WWE, I never understood the move particularly because we live in a DVR culture now. And, yep. and and head to head, chances are TNA's audience watches WWE as well, and it just never made sense to me. Even with okay, I've got a DVR that can record two things at the same time, so I'm not going to sit here and tell you that oh, I'm going to turn down a deal from X. But uh, my philosophy is more that I am doing this like an indie film in the sense I'm not going to compromise on what my creative vision is. I have a, I, look, I, I, I wouldn't do this if I didn't have a certain philosophy in terms of what I wanted to go after and try to capture. And compromising that doesn't seem necessary when my model is designed, in the worst case, to be a standalone piece that can go into ancillaries after. Uh, so I, I think that's, again, it's part of my sort of idea, my thinking of really trying to look at the model in and of itself and see where we can, uh, how we can use economies of scale to our advantage. That I just think you have to do that given the, the way uh, there are so many options now for content. Uh, there's just no other way to operate. It's why, it's why HBO develops HBO Go. Oh, yeah, HBO Go is fantastic, and it's a step in the right direction, especially for programming, because you're skipping the middleman and you're putting yourself out there using your, your your own branding. There's no there's no Hulu involvement. There's none of this other stuff. It's just look, you want it? HBO goes the place. You can even watch episodes a week early. I, that, that, when I when that came out, I said this is going to change the game. Right. This is where lot. stuff's moving. And, and look, the issue for Netflix ultimately is Netflix doesn't own any of their content. They're just now moving into original financing of content, and so all the people that own those uh, those libraries of content are going to start trying to pull them back eventually and doing things like HBO to go and, and stuff along those lines. But even with the shrinking value of content in the universe we live in, if you own a library of content, it has value. That's why Vince goes and pays what he does to go and acquire tapes for WWE Classics on Demand. How do you? How are you seeing this in terms of getting your talent? Are you going to try and use established talent? Are you gonna? Are you gonna work with guys that are on the come up and build your own stars? How, what kind of an approach are you gonna use? You don't have to give any names if you're talking to anybody, of course. But you know, what approach are you gonna use to to kind of build your talent roster? Um, I, I very simply don't see the point in going and presenting characters that you can get on all sorts of other promotions uh, television. I, I'm not sure why anybody would do that. Um, so I'm not really interested in going, okay, 
X amount of guys just got laid off at WWE. Let's go poach through them and go get guys just because they were just on television. That's not my style. That's not to say that if there's someone there that I think has untapped potential that I see something and I won't go and try to get them. But generally speaking, I am going into this with the idea of trying to create new characters. It's just more interesting to me. And again, to be different, I, I don't see what giving you, you know, pick uh, indie wrestler you like X, just whoever, and presenting them the same way you would get him at Dragon Gate or Ring of Honor or NWA Hollywood or any of that stuff. So while I may even take the talent, chances are, with exceptions, and generally rare exceptions, I'll probably be looking to repackage them. I'm really trying to create an entirely new feel, and uh, pardon the terminology given where it comes from, but a universe in and of itself. There's no, there's no harm in that, because you want, you want these characters to stand on their own and become household names. And, and you know, that, that, that's actually a really great approach. The, the thing that, that gets me with that is that there's so many characters out there, and, and I'm sure you've, ha- you've seen this as well, where you as a fan have said to yourself, this guy has a ton of potential, but he's being written so, so poorly. And, Look, you know, uh, if, uh, as an example, I'm going to give you a weird one. One of my favorite characters when I was a kid and that I always thought was a great idea that they didn't do enough with was Evil Doink. When Doink first came in, played by Matt Bourne, and he was the evil clown, he was Pennywise from It!, that was a smart character. And the minute they made him a baby, they just lost all of that zest. And so when Eugene came along years later, I was like, oh, this has to pay off with him for some reason, either going evil or he was smart all along and he's a heel or whatever. And it, they never did that. It was surface the entire time. It had no layers, no depth, uh, uh, no, uh, and no depth to it. And I think that... I want to err on the side. If I'm, like I said, if I'm going to fail, it's going to be failing for trying to create too many new concepts, too many new characters, uh, and, and try to push it a little bit. I, uh, frankly, just even from a business level, the win is in having things you can license. And uh, one character getting over raises that entire ship. It is truly the rising tide. Uh, and so, yeah, I just... I, I, if you can get a, a Wrestler X in five different ways on five different people's eye pay-per-views or whatever, what's the point of me giving you the same thing? There's nothing special in that. Well, now, know. that said, if I imported a piece of talent from Japan, if I brought Her- Hiroshi Tanahashi in or somebody, I'm not going to rename him like Hirohito or any of that kind of crap. Uh, I'm really kind of over... I want to play with the kind of classic wrestling racial stereotyping. I want to, I want to subvert all of that stuff. I, I just think so much of what they do is, is so passe, and it's, it's an industry-wide issue, really. Uh, that, and again, I don't claim I'm going to be perfect. I'll probably have stuff that misses as much as it hits. But I think endeavoring to go and do something new is, is worth the risk, and I don't have a problem failing if that's what you're going for. Oh, the, the, sometimes you have to gamble in order to fail. I mean, one of the characters that I think had a lot of potential at the time, you know, and this was going back, was the Muhammad Hassan character. And when, you know, when the network balked and, you know, they, they, they were giving the WWE a hard time about it, I actually felt that they should have pushed back a little because that character, what you were saying er- earlier on, it holds true. You need depth. You need a, a bigger angle for the character. You need a payoff. Maybe the guy was 
you know, you can just as easily say the guy did it the whole time to get noticed, and as soon as he got a title shot, he admitted that it was all a, a farce, you know, but there was no payoff, and they were afraid to take that gamble. So, you know, I really like hearing from you that you want to take that risk in creating characters and pushing the envelope. Yeah, and, and to take you a step further, an example, a perfect example of what I would not want to do ties right into your Muhammad Hassan point, which is when TNA signed Davari and they turned him into a chic character. Okay, I'm sorry, it's 2011, the guy's 25 years old, he's not a fucking sheik. People know that. There's got to be a hipper version, a hipper way to get into that character than to sit there and go, oh, you're Arab-American, get a turban on him. It's just lazy writing, and I, 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 again, I have a lot of friends over at that company, it's not personal, but it's, you know, I don't have a problem when people criticize my movies, you should be thick-skinned enough to be able to have criticize your writing, and that to me is just exactly indicative of what I don't want want to do. It's like the WWE thing where if they take a black... A friend of mine pointed this out to me. I thought he was joking. He's actually kind of right. When WWE gets a black piece of talent, very often what they'll do is they'll take a biblical first name and the last name of a U.S. president. That's the way they program them. And I was like, that's not true. And then I looked and it was Ezekiel Jackson, Abraham Washington, Ahmed Johnson. I mean, you start looking at this stuff and you're just like, oh my goodness. Uh, And it just starts to get wrote at a point in time, you know? And so that's the stuff I'd really like to try to flip or at least at least fail in endeavoring to try to do that. Well, it's funny. You've given me a homework assignment now because now I'm going to try and every... I'm going to try and find as many African-American performers that have a biblical name and a wrestling name. I mean, look, three is more than enough. It's, it's like if I asked you right now, name me your favorite WWE performer that has short brown hair and wears black tights. We could be here for two hours. Oh, man. You're right. I mean... One thing I wanted to ask is when, and especially from your involvement in in various promotions at at various levels, how do you feel when you look at a piece of writing, especially now with what you're planning on doing, and you want to apply that to a character that you're building, and you realize that this writing doesn't mesh well with this character? And I want to use um, a guy like Randy Orton as an example only because Randy Orton, you know, you're trying to book him as like this badass, stone-cold Steve Austin kind of dude. And it's like, I look at Randy Orton, I see a men's health cover model. You know, like you don't see, like, yeah, he's a badass guy because he's a wrestler, but he's not a badass guy because he looks like a lunatic. I mean, I met the guy. Girls were bringing him flowers when I went to meet him. So, you know, how do you feel about just the writing fitting the character? And, you know, what what approach are you going to take with regards to that? I, I come very much from the Heyman philosophy that you, you, you meet somebody, you come to understand what makes them tick, you find the 15, hopefully it's more than 15%, but if it's 15%, you work with it, you accentuate the positive, hide their negatives, and find that extension of self that when you turn it up to 11, is the essence of the character you're trying to get to. Uh, it's really no different than working with actors and trying to bring them along and build a star in that medium. It's Star building is star building. It, it, it's presentation, production, and protection, really. It's, 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 it's not rocket science, and, and more often than not, you can't fake it. Audiences smell that out. They're really not stupid, uh, no matter no matter what some people might think sometimes in, in all sorts of mediums. Audiences usually are more savvy than they get credit for. So I think all, all good writing comes from character, generally, I find, and, and particularly in television. These are people you're allowing into your house. That's why character matters. 
Uh, and so I think it's going to be integral, but I think, again, it points to the genius of what Heyman was able to do. I mean, he had you, for how many years, believing Taz was the baddest man on the planet. Taz is shorter than I am. I could post him up in a basketball game. Taz is by far one of my favorite characters, especially because I get so many people saying I look like him. He's actually one of my favorite characters. His his interaction, I have uh, an old DCW DVD, his interactions with Jerry Lawler at one point when they were feuding with WWE were epic only because you can tell that it wasn't written and it was raw emotion. I mean, there was a point where he cut a promo and he's like, Lawler, I'm begging you, I'm going to lie here in the middle of the ring for you to come in here and whoop my ass. And I said to myself, that's a bad dude, because that's the type of raw emotion that I just feel is missing in so many promos. Like, a lot of times, I'll see a guy like John Cena cut a promo, and he gets into, you know, angry, shaky face, and I say to myself, is that really how you get angry? Because I'd laugh in your face. Uh, I, I I don't disagree with you. I think it's an issue with the product, and I think a lot of it, by virtue of being so heavily scripted, it's hard for guys to find their real voice. It's it, it you know I, the one the, the only guys that that have, are able to break that mold are guys that had that natural charisma already and like you said they they took that fifteen percent and uh, that they that they can magnify and ran with it you know the rock the rock is sitting there right now cashing paychecks and he's just basically playing himself dialed up a little bit but it took him a while to break out of that and allow you know that creative freedom to come forth same thing with a guy like mr anderson mr anderson and tna and mr kennedy and wwe are slightly are slightly different but it's just certain aspects that they cut out of his character in wwe and i said to myself damn it they kept that guy in wwe and given him the persona he has now He'd be moving merchandise probably at a level that Stone Cold Steve Austin did. I don't know if it's that much, but it's certainly you'd have asshole shirts all over the place, probably. Absolutely, you know, you that, that pushing of the envelope is key, and you know that's one thing I, I'm looking forward to with your project because th- your your fresh approach makes it that much more inviting to want to look into when when you originally announced it. You know, like I said, I've been following you through Geek Week and, you know, following your projects, you know, quietly. And I read your your write-up for this. I said to myself, holy shit, this, you know, he's got it. Because that's the kind of thing you want. You want to be able to put that idea out there and have it speak to the audience you know, and not need to sell them on it. And I think that's what's been happening as of late with both promotions and even uh, pro wrestling in general. They focus too much on the sell instead of letting the character do the selling for you. Look, I mean, again, it's it's. Uh, I could talk you till till you're blue about the characters that get us into our our shows, and it's all of the guys I listed, and it's it's got to come from that. Um, and I think compelling characters are the heart and soul of great storytelling. It's it's very simple. At the end of the day, this stuff is not rocket science. That's what's so frustrating about it. Uh, and I think if you just bring some basic classic storytelling principles back into the model of what we know as wrestling television, uh, good things will happen. Or to, again, I really feel that at the end of the day on this, if in the worst case, I've only able been, a- been able to do one season. At least, again, you're getting that complete story, and we just don't get that anymore. It's so rare uh, that I think that in and of itself will make it kind of unique. Yeah, I am. Um, whether you do one season or or it's ongoing, you know, you you definitely might have my support on this because I, you know, as a, as a guy who does, 
you know, who's going on a hundred shows soon and you know, talking about wrestling and, and talking to the athletes. I got to see a, an independent show re- recently put on by Amazing Red School. And there's so many guys that are that just go under the radar that are so talented and so passionate. And I say to myself, if you ever got up to the big leagues, they'd eat you up just because the, all the originality that made me a fan of your work, they're just going to strip it away from you. You know, and, I, and it's, it's, you know, I'm really watching this with, with a lot of interest because I, the possibility of that happening is zero. <laughs> yeah, look, unique talents need to be presented uniquely. They demand it. And stripping that away to fit a cookie cutter may work for some people. It's not the way I operate. I think that the, uh, like, I, again, not, they may not all hit, but that's the way you find the winners. Uh, that that That's where, be they act. Remember, I, I actually used this example again to someone the other day. We lived in an era once where our biggest movie stars were guys like Al Pacino and Dustin Hoffman, who were not leading men in the matinee sense by any stretch, but they were phenomenally talented, and their talent was the draw. Uh, and it's, you know, sometimes you get that kismet, that combination. You get Robert Downey Jr. or Johnny Depp, where they are matinee idols, but they've got that great talent, and then you've got a supernova. Uh, and, and so the principles really aren't aren't different. They are they are they are apple to apple, and it's just trying to find the wrestling equivalent of those. And maybe you might not find Depp and Downey, but you may be able to go and you say, you know, wow, Vince Vaughn does this thing really good, or or Will Ferrell does this quite well, or you know, you you find ways to maximize guys who might not be five tool players, but they have two or three, and you're able to go and shine the light on those two and three and make them work to your advantage while hiding the things that don't work. That's producing. That's what producing basically is. Yeah, this is... Oh, man. You you have no idea how pumped I am for this because I know... I know in my heart of hearts it's going to work only because there's so many of us that are that are disillusioned and you know to to reinforce what you've said you know I challenge the listeners and and the wrestling fans to go out there and whether it's a buck or or more than that and put your money where your mouth is and and make a difference to to make wrestling better I, I damn it I I want to fucking see it because I'm tired of of watching my wrestling shows on fast forward you know I watch more MMA now than I do pro wrestling consistently only because my wrestling, I watch it condensed and on fast forward because I just end up getting disgusted at some of the stuff I see. And I go, wow, this is where you're going with it. You know, it's, it, it's a sad state of affairs for something I've grown up watching since I was five years old, all the way to, you know, my, my, my early thirties now. Well, you know, it speaks to why we did, we made the decision to do it with Kickstarter and do it in the crowdsourcing form uh, because I think when you look back at ECW, remove the blood and guts, remove the international talent and the language, all these things were important. But what Paul did that was genius was he cultivated an us-against-the-world attitude with his audience. And that audience believed they were pushing change. And that's a powerful, powerful, powerful thing. And it's not something you can fake. And by making this a crowdsourced thing, it's a very natural way, I think, to go in and generate this. And, you know, the irony is that Kickstarter generally, which is, you know, very well-regarded sort of emerging tech company, has generally done stuff with, like, indie film and albums and art. They really don't do wrestling-based stuff. And I had to have an email exchange with the woman from there to sort of convince her to let me do it using their format. 
Um, and I think, again, at the bare minimum, it's a fascinating social experiment, but it, it really is. It's a great test. Is it worth not supersizing your meal or skipping your morning coffee to put a dollar towards trying to prove a point? Uh, I will tell you that I certainly have had texts from people inside several of the major companies sniffing around, so they know it exists. Uh, and so I'm all for making it more and more something they have to go and keep their eye on, even if it's us going off at the end of the day and saying, you know what, fuck you, we're going to go in a corner, we're going to do it a certain way, you might like it, you might not like it, but stick it up your ass, we're going to go do it. That, that to me is the attitude that is necessary. It's the attitude that's driven the revolutions in film over the years, going back to the 70s and that boom, even to the 90s independent film movement. And I think it's high time we did this again here. And, and like I said, at the bare minimum, win, lose, or draw, it's going to be a fascinating ride. Uh, and, and I promise you this, I, I will endeavor to make this as entertaining, even if it's a complete failure for you, uh, as humanly possible. I, I would never be taking the time out or pulling the trigger on something like this if I didn't think I could do it well. Well, like, like I said, you know, and, and, I, and I reinforce it, you, you have our utmost support. I'm going to make sure I, you know, I pledge on, on behalf of the show to support your project because, they, again, I, I believe in it. And as somebody who, you know, invests three hours a week, you know, bitching about wrestling. It's, it's about time I did, I did my part to make it better. Well, I appreciate that, and thank you for the support. And uh, obviously, anyone in your audience, please just keep getting the word out. And we're, we're doing a lot of interviews, I suspect, over the next 70 days here. Uh, but the response has been awesome so far, and I think, again, speaks to a sort of yearning from fans for just something that's a slightly different flavor. Uh, but I, I really appreciate the support, and I obviously appreciate you having me on. Oh, yeah, I am. Um... Well, once the the show gets archived and we put it on our apps and in our respective places, I will do a full write up and make sure you guys are linked and I'm going to put it on our Facebook fan page as well. So I guarantee you, one way or the other, you're you're going to get some support from us and definitely from me. So well, you know. very very kind of you, and I appreciate that. And again, I'm I'm really easily accessible. If people want to find me, it's at Cats Money or at the Fighting Geek on Twitter. If you have questions, come and grab me. I, I, again, I really firmly believe that you, good ideas can come from anywhere. I like to think I've got a sense of humor about myself, so feel free to come by, say hello if you have questions, concerns, or whatever. Don't hesitate. Absolutely. Besides um, your Kickstarter page and Twitter, have you set up uh, anything on Facebook regarding the Wrestling Revolution yet, just other avenues where people can keep up to date with it? We have a Facebook page up. Frankly, I've got to do a better job of maintaining it. I'm I am weird in the sense that like I've got a, I've got like five thousand friends on Facebook, and I don't know why I don't like going on it anymore. I don't know what's happened. It's peaked for me. Uh, but we will we will get that a bit deeper in. Yeah, Twitter's been driving the bulk of this so far, uh, which has been a, a wild sort of experience to watch. But the Facebook page is up there as well, and these things will all get linked. And figure sooner than rather than later, you'll probably have a standalone site to go with this also oh fantastic um like like i said anytime you want to come on and, and update the listeners you you got an open door jeff you know oh, i appreciate I, I, pre I appreciate just you taking the time to share this project with us and our listeners man i'm i'm super pumped oh, totally my pleasure and i appreciate that i'd love to come back sometime and and again anyone that's got questions don't hesitate come grab me anytime all right buddy i will uh let you go but again make sure to check out uh, the Wrestling Revolution on Kickstarter.com. I put the link in our live chat. And also you can follow at Cats Money, at Fight Geek, and use the hashtag Wrestling Revolution to continue to spread the word. Awesome. Perfect.
Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on, and we'll definitely keep in touch for sure. My pleasure, man. Thank you again. All right, man. Have a good night. You too. Bye. All right, you've just heard Jeff Cat you've just heard Jeff Katz from the Wrestling Revolution. You'll be able to check out that project at Kickstarter.com slash projects slash seven nine zero nine eight three 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 eight slash wrestling hyphen revolution. I will be putting the link in our MTR rewind post. You can also find the link in the chat room and you can also look for the link on Twitter at the at his um Twitter account at Fighting Geek. The word fighting and geek together and you can find it there and click the link. And again, as little as a dollar, as high up as a thousand dollars or more you know, wrestling fans, put you put your money where your mouth is. You don't you don't like what Vince McMahon and Dixie Carter are churning out every week. You're tired of the bullshit, the cookie cutter storylines, the lack of character development, seeing your favorite stars just made look made to look like complete shit. Do something about it. Put put a buck out there. Even if it's a dollar, you know, forego that candy bar or that latte and put the money out there because this has the potential to be something that can be great. It it can be what we want it to be. It can have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You can know which characters are there. You can watch the development of your money grow something that you can watch for years to come, and you can tell other wrestling fans years from now, like, you know what, this promotion, this wrestling revolution, I was a part of it. And you know what, MTR is behind this 100%, and I'll make sure that once the broadcast is done, I will pledge on behalf of My Take Radio because... I'm tired of the shit of coming in here every week and talking to you guys about what's wrong with the wrestling business. Um, I think that at the end of the day, if it works and it takes off, I just want to feel that I was a part of that. So, again, keep an eye out for the links in our MTR Rewind post on our Facebook fan page or just hit up Jeff on Twitter. A really cool dude. He's always willing to answer questions. Give him a little bit of time to get back to you, obviously because of the time difference if you're on the East Coast. But you want more information, definitely keep keep up with MTR and look out for these guys on Twitter and also on Kickstarter. All you need is a dollar, folks. Let's make it happen. All right. We got um about seventy five minutes of show left according to what Slick mentioned to me, so I just want to jump into a couple of other things that um, I really don't want to leave out. Um, on the MMA side of things, I just want to, there's so much MMA stuff, but I really want to talk video games and movie news just because I felt I've let that fall by the wayside, and there's so many things in those two categories I want to discuss and on the wrestling front, so I'm just going to run through a couple of things. On the MMA side of things, um, the New York State Senate voted for the approval of MMA regulation here in New York State. Don't get too happy yet because it still needs to go to the state assembly, and those motherfuckers are the ones that kill it every fucking time it goes up there. These old codgers, these cratchety old fucks who don't do their homework, every time the bill passes the Senate and goes up to the state assembly, these pieces of shit take it upon themselves to not do their research, to not learn about the sport, and proceed to just just kill it every time. When the New York State, when the New York Senate approved MMA regulation, I was super excited, and of course, 
it was a, a huge margin, 42 to 18. Uh, the bill is S1707A. And um, if, if you're a New York resident, take the opportunity, do your homework, look up your, your state assembly rep, hit them up via email, email their office, and um, do your part. If you want to see, if you're a New Yorker and you're a fan of MMA, whether it's the UFC or not the UFC, just MMA in general, take the time to, to be part of the political process and hit up your state assembly reps and let them know that this isn't a barbaric sport. It is, it is just as, as, as well done and honorable as boxing and even as Muay Thai and kickboxing that is, that is done here in New York. I, I just feel that at this point, so many states have already had MMA going on for quite some time. And the fact that we're one of the largest cities in the world, that, you know, one of the entertainment capitals right up there with Los Angeles, and we can't have a UFC event or a Strike Force event or a Bellator event in the mecca of Madison Square Garden boggles my fucking mind. But you know what? I know that Slick is on the line, and he has his thoughts to share on this, so I'm going to bring him on real quick. Slick, what's going yeah. on, buddy? What's up, man? What do you have, my friend? Um, I wanted to tell, say that I recently saw a news report on um, Files 1. Like, every afternoon at 5, they have this little show where, like, they talk about whatever's relevant. And this past, I think it was either Wednesday or Tuesday, they were talking about the, you know, the possibility of MMA becoming legal in New York. And they have a little, you know how a news report has like their little background poster on the topic and it says human cockfighting. That shit just really pissed me off. Of course it does. That's the, that's the easiest connotation that they can use without doing their fucking homework. Sometimes I hate the goddamn press. I tell you that. And what made it worse is they're talking about how MMA is so violent and everything. They picked and choose the clips they wanted to show. They showed every fight where there was just a moment of, like, a flurry of striking, kicks, punches, whatever. Didn't show any groundwork or any, you know, any clutching or anything like that. I'm like, that's not everything that MMA is about. So it's like you're showing people uneducated to the game what you want them to see just because you don't want this in New York. And it's stupid because MMA is no more or less violent than boxing, which is perfectly legal in New York, and it will bring a shitload of money to to um, New York. I mean, right before the the um, human cockfighting thing, they had a whole thing about how they need to save Nassau Coliseum. Guess what? If you have MMA legal in New York, guess, guess the good place where you can hold all those events. I agree. I think I think one of the things that frustrates me the most is that they talk about how, you know, it's not safe. If they took the time and did their research, do they realize that in boxing, substantially more punches are thrown than in mixed martial arts? Just that stat alone is enough to make you want to think about the fact that maybe this isn't as bad as it's played out to be. Because think about it. In boxing, sometimes within the first two rounds, over 150 to 250 punches can be thrown. Out of those 150 to 250, say, 
you know, 80 of them connect, depending on who's fighting. That amount of punches in MMA would e even lower volume punches than that would result in either a referee stoppage or a knockout. And these uh, these uneducated fucking piss bucket journalists for mainstream press are not doing their homework because it's so much easier to use that controversial term of human cockfighting. Do they not realize that 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 two men have always engaged in combat since long before dating back to biblical times? It's always existed. The only difference is now is that you're not getting eaten by fucking lions and swords and shields aren't involved. But it's the purest form of entertainment there is. The, you know, when you look at, at stories from Rome and the mob, one of the things that Rome did when it needed money was hold gladiator contests because it generated revenue. The same shit exists now in the modern era. De Silva put up a great, a great point. When UFC 129 was in Canada, hotel bookings increased by 20%. Imagine that type of volume in New York City hotels by Madison Square Garden. And, I mean, take it a, another step. First of all, MMA fights don't go half as long as boxing fights. A, a boxing fight, uh, you know, like a, a WBO, WBC fight, is 12 rounds if it goes that long. The longest MMA fight is five rounds if it's a championship or a big, you know, a big name fight. So, like you said, there's less punches being thrown. You have on a, 12, a fight that goes 12 rounds anywhere from, like, a couple of hundred to maybe, like, a thousand punches thrown. Nowhere near that much is thrown in, in MMA because, for one thing, it's not all punching. A lot of it is wrestling. And, again, wrestling's perfectly legal in New York. Again, it may be scripted, but people get fucked up in wrestling, too, purposely or otherwise. And what do you call it? The... Shit, I got so angry I lost my thoughts for a second. The, um... Yeah, you got, a, you got a little background noise or a little crackle there in the background. So just adjust your bike. Hold on a second. Hey, yeah, the, it's like you have, a, you know, like I said, MMA fights go at most five rounds. You take ten fights in UFC or those or anybody else, three to five of them are stoppages. How many times is a fight stopped in, in boxing? Almost never. Yeah, they so go. It's like it's actually more humane, I would say, because of the fact that if a guy's really getting fucked up, he gets stopped. That's right. Safety first. But, you know, this is this is going to be something that until it reaches the state assembly, and like I said, it's the same thing I said with regards to wrestling. MMA fans, especially here in New York State, you know, hit up your local your local assemblies. I mean, I, I, we, I have Barbara Clark within walking distance. And, you know, I plan on drafting up something and, and dropping it in, in the mail or just leaving it right in her office only because of the fact that this is a, a, a huge topic because we have no fucking money. You know, our Mayor Bloomberg, you know, Mayor Bike Path, he'll go and he'll spend money. Oh, yeah, we're going to put bike paths here and we're going to do this. And we have no fucking jobs, but we got a fuckload of bike paths. You know, we have seats in Times Square to sit and, and drink coffee and stare at the giant TV screen, but 
there's a huge, there's a big amount of homeless people out there. There's no money. You know, public programs are being cut. Public benefits are being cut. And the fact that you can make 20 to $30 million a year, it's easy money, and you're just rejecting it on the principle that you don't agree with the concept. It's like, go fuck yourself, you know, with that shit. Basically, basically. Well, we'll see what happens. Do you have anything else to add, my friend? No, I'm done no. with this subject. All right, I'm just going to run in th- through some of the other subjects, so if you want to call back, you're more than welcome to do so. All right, man. Talk to you later. All right, man. Peace. All right. Um, two other things I wanted to discuss in regards to MMA is the card for Overeem versus Verdum. Uh, June 18th is is finally tied up, and it is fantastic. You got the uh, heavyweight Grand Prix opening rounds. The main event is the Demolition Man, Alistair Overeem, taking off Fabricio Verdum. The co-main event is Josh Barnett versus Brett Rogers. You also got the return of Gina Carano. She's going to be fighting uh, Sarah D'Alelio. And also uh, one of my favorite one of my favorite Strike Force fighters, Daniel Cormier, he's going to be taking on the Snowman, Jeff Monson. It's going to be epic. Chad Griggs and Valentin Overeem on the main card. On the prelims, you got uh, Jorge Masvidal and KJ News. You got Julie Kedzie and Amanda Nunez, uh, Jay Z Cavalcante and Justin Wilcox, Magno Almeida and Connor Hewen are also on that card. It's it's going to be fantastic. I really am looking forward to this because the heavyweight Grand Prix fights have. So many implications, especially because these guys, they're on the precipice of of not only advancing in the Grand Prix and getting an opportunity at the heavyweight championship, but I am sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that Dana White is watching this, especially with the huge injury cloud hanging over the heavyweight division and the, the, the not to say that it's in flux, but just the the lack of, of more talent in the heavyweight division. I'm sure Dana White is watching this with much interest. Guys like Alistair Overeem, Josh Barnett, even Brett Rogers, and especially Fabricio Verdum can all hang with UFC fighters. Any guy that sits there that is an MMA fan and writes off Strike Force's heavyweights uh, uh, in comparison to UFC fighters needs to do their fucking homework and get their head examined because those guys are the guys that can go in there and take it to a um, you know a Junior Dos Santos or a Brock Lesnar. Imagine a guy like Alistair Overeem fighting Brock Lesnar. Just imagine the collision of two behemoths like that, or a Frank Mir or a, a Big Country Nelson against Fabricio Verdum. The the acquisition of Strike Force for the time being, of course, will remain a you know. It, keeps them as a separate entity from the UFC. But the potential for these matches to happen is only a few years away, good, bad, or otherwise. So people need to get off the, you know, and, and to reference Bloodstained Lane and stop being just Zufa zombies and educate themselves on the finer points of not only other MMA promotions, but other MMA fighters. It's not just Cain Velasquez, Junior Dos Santos, Brock Lesnar, um, uh, you know, fuck, um, Frank Mir. Those those are the only heavyweights in the game that can really put on entertaining fights. So if you get the opportunity, it's on Showtime. It's free. June 18th is the date. Do yourselves a favor. Check it out. Also from Strike Force, the Strike Force Challenger Series, a lot of great up-and-coming fighters. They got an event uh, June 24th in Kent, Washington. A lot of great fighters on there. Karis Fedor versus James Terry. You got Ryan Couture, son of the legendary Randy Couture. You got Antoine Britt. 
and uh, Danilo Villafort, Gian Vellante, Jason High, who I've seen him fight in Japan, who is incredibly athletic, super talented, guys that you definitely need to keep an eye on, especially on the strike force side of things. Do yourselves a favor if you've got Showtime do your, and, and check these guys out. Like I said, June 24th for the Strike Force Challengers 16 and June 18th for the Heavyweight Grand Prix opening rounds with Overeem and Verdum as your main event. The only thing I want to talk about wrestling-wise is WWE Raw. I, I, can, I don't have my screen open anymore, but the only thing I want to talk about is the angle going on with Karma, who you may know as Awesome Kong. During this week's episode of Raw, she came out, she confronted all the divas, and just sat in the middle of the ring and proceeded to start having, quote-unquote, a nervous breakdown. Now, it's been speculated that they're doing this because they plan on writing her off television because she is pregnant. Another issue is that she has been being written off of television because they've had issues with her weight. Now, if she's pregnant, okay, I understand that, but... With regards to her weight, you've invited, you've signed this woman to a contract and you've signed her based on her wrestling ability and her presentation. Awesome Kong in TNA versus Awesome Kong in WWE, she is a lot smaller in size. You know, she's in shape and she's just a large woman. The fact that you're sitting there, tell and and I'm again this is all speculation but making issues about her weight knowing damn well that she is you know she's being billed as a monster in the women's division is really piss poor if that's the case if she's pregnant then congratulations and you know we'll see you in 9 months but if there is a uh, an issue with regards to weight that that's really stupid only because you guys knew what you were getting based on her work in TNA. If she is going to lose weight, let it be something out of her own volition. I think that at the size she is now, she's not morbidly obese or disgusting looking. She is a large woman, and she has to be booked as a monster in comparison to the other divas. And by keeping her like that and booking her like that, you keep her character strong. Having her come out and sit in the middle of the ring crying, you just burst any bubble of toughness that she had built. So we're going to see how it pans out next week. She's supposed to come out and cut a promo or a statement, and we'll see where that goes. So I definitely wanted to reference that. Also, I wanted to reference two other things. China, um, who you've seen on TNA recently, is allegedly planning on returning back to porn. According to Vivid President Steve Hirsch, he says that China came to him a couple of months back and wanted to revive her porn career. So Hirsch set her up with Evan and Lee Stone, and the three shot a new sex tape tentatively titled Back Door into China. So, um, <laughs> first off, I'm sure TNA loved reading that on TMZ today, especially because they signed her you know, on a handshake agreement. But I guarantee you that handshake agreement or not, this is not going to go over well with TNA only because if they wanted to use her further, now she's an adult film star and her name is associated with, you know, with adult film. So now what? It, again, just, just lack of, you know, wanting to generate a buzz and it has the, the possibility of blowing up in your face if you wanted to do anything long term. So China is supposedly going to be involved with these two actors, Evan and Lee Stone, for Backdoor into China. So 
For those of you that are adult DVD connoisseurs, be on the lookout for that in the near future. Lastly, to close out the wrestling segment, I wanted to talk about Kurt Angle training to go back to the Olympics. Can you believe that? Kurt Angle is 43 years of age, and he's going trying to make history by going back onto the U.S. Olympic team for wrestling. Um, he's been saying that he's been doing it for some time, and there will actually be a reality series um, focusing on his path to the Olympics, and it will be debuting this fall. So I'm sure it'll probably be on Spike TV. I'm actually very curious to see that because as an athlete and as a weightlifter and as a fan of just wrestling, I really would like to see an inside view into Kurt Angle because a lot of people consider him eccentric, a little crazy, but the the man's athletic prowess and his legacy in wrestling is is unquestionably great. And Hall of Famer is written all over him. So to see this and see him preparing to go to the Olympics at the age of 43 is something I'm going to watch, especially because of the injuries he's had and his involvement in pro wrestling. Can he do it? Don't write him off only because there's a possibility that he can make it to the Olympic team and possibly win another gold medal. I really am going to be watching this with much interest, and you'll be able to see that coming up real soon. I'm going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we are going to get into some video games right after this. You know those shows where they play video game music and they laugh in like really high voices like... <laughs> well, you won't listen to that on our show because uh, we don't have the budget for that kind of thing. We're broke as hell. And uh, nobody really cares that much to laugh that hard. So um, if you're looking for a show like that that has horrible audio quality and... Uh, Void of fake laughter. Video game news radio. 11 p.m. Tuesday nights. On all games. Let's talk some video games. I feel that uh, video games have fallen by the wayside since we've had so many great guests these, these last couple of weeks. Uh, first off, we're going to open up with Major Nelson from Microsoft Xbox talking about some really interesting stats for the recent Gears of War 3 beta. Gears of War, of course, will be coming out in the fall, and there's been a lot of positive feedback with regards to the beta that has been available. Uh, the game has over a million pre-orders, according to his blog. And in reference to the beta... Over 1.2 million players took part in over 11 million multiplayer matches. Here are some of the breakdowns for some of those other stats that i got to share with you guys. That involves 145 different countries that have participated thus far. 249 years of matches have been played. 11 million matches have been completed. 927 million kills have been recorded. 131 million executions have been performed. 23 million deaths by chainsaw. 23 billion bullets have been fired. In addition to that, 4.9 billion ribbons and 291 million medals have been earned. 435,000 people earned the beta-exclusive thrash ball coal skin to be used in the retail game. In addition to that, 234,000 people have earned the beta-exclusive gold retro lancer for the retail game when it launches in September. The way it is, it's shaping up to be another blockbuster for the crew at Epic with Gears of War 3. I will, of course, play it regardless of my issues with Cliffy B. I actually have a soft spot for the Gears of War games. I usually play them on single-player campaign just to play the campaign. 
I don't foray too much into multiplayer only because I get murdered viciously because I don't play often, so I don't do the multiplayer. But the single-player component is, have always been well done, and the story is engaging. So if it will be the last game in the series, I really would like to see how they tie everything up. That's for sure. In another milestone, Angry Birds has succeeded in doing something that has murdered even some of the most some some of those well sold games in the game. Uh, for being an iOS game, it has sold over well, it has had over two hundred million downloads. Not only that, but five million of those downloads have been due to the fact that you can play it now on Google Chrome. So if you have a Google Chrome browser, you can actually go to the Google Chrome App Store and download Angry Birds, I should know, and you can play it right on your browser. So besides playing it on your Android device, uh, I believe PSN, your iOS, your iPad, um, I believe Windows Mobile, and possibly uh, the Nokia OV software as well, you pretty much have Angry Birds everywhere. And I'm sure it will probably appear on the 3DS at some point. It's it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. 200 million downloads is insane. Some of those downloads, of course, have been free, while others, of course, have been for a nominal fee. So Rovio is making a shitload of money. It's insanity, 200 million downloads. In some Lego, in some Lego title news, a new Lego Harry Potter will be coming out to close out the series. It's Lego Harry Potter years five through seven, and it will be released this holiday season, probably in time for the final DVD release of the series. So keep an eye out for that um, this fall if you're a fan of the Lego series. In some other movie tie-in news, Ubisoft has announced that you'll be able to play the Smurfs Dance Party. Think about this closely, folks. The guys that made Assassin's Creed Beyond Good and Evil are going to be making a dancing game that's going to tie into the Smurfs movie. You'll be able to dance alongside your favorite characters from the feature film, including Smurfette, Papa Smurf, Clumsy Smurf, Brainy Smurf, Gutsy Smurf, and even Gargamel. It's going to be available in July for the Wii, and you'll be able to have 20 fun dances, quote-unquote, all created by professional choreographers and led by the Smurfs. There's also going to be a mini-games collection involving the Smurfs that will be released for the DS. For all our listeners that are playing L.A. Noir, get ready for some downloadable content in June. That's going to be the Nicholson Electroplating Arson Case, and it will be available June 21st. So be on the lookout for that if you're playing L.A. Noir. Something that I would never have thought Sony would decide to do actually was announced earlier this week, and it's a new series that they're going to be doing called PlayStation Portable Remaster Series, in which Sony, in their infinite wisdom to rob us blind, have decided to take PSP games and put them on the PS3 with extra content, HD graphics, 3D visuals, controller support, and other additional enhancements. In addition to that, the PS3 versions will be able to play multiplayer against PSP players via the ad hoc service. Finally, all the saves from that will be transferred from the PSP back to the PS3 and vice versa. The first game is going to be happening in the, the first game available of this sort will be in Japan, and it's going to be Monster Hunter Portable 3rd, which will be released in Japan this summer. Keep an eye out for more announcements when E3 comes, out, comes to the United States in June. I can tell you this. If the God of War PSP series makes its way to console, I will definitely be picking it up. And um, 
I can tell you that this is going to be another way for Sony to get some of those other titles, um, some more exposure with, like I said, the God of War series, uh, some of the Metal Gear games that have come out on the PSP. Smart move on their part. I just think it's a little too late in the game to do. But we'll see how it's met when the NPD numbers come out and this stuff, and this stuff starts becoming the norm and when the PSN is finally back online full-time. So keep an eye out for that. For those of you guys that play Ratchet and & Clank and were wondering when the next one is coming out, Ratchet & Clank All 4-1 will be coming out in October, right before the huge rush of holiday titles. You'll be able to pick it up October 18th. There's also going to be some pre-order incentives for the game, which have been, which have been announced. You're going to get um, a classic gun, which players can use. But in addition to that, certain retailers will be offering exclusives as well. GameStop will have Mr. Zircon. Walmart is going to be offering the Sheepinator mod, which will allow you to turn enemies into sheep. Amazon gets the T-Rex Morph mod, and Best Buy will unlock the Pyro Blaster. In adding a little bit more Sony news to this segment, Sony gave out some of their fiscal forecast numbers this past third, well, earlier today, I should say, and um, they said that they've actually forecasted a $3.2 billion loss for the fiscal year ending March 31st. As of today, said Sony, our currently known associated costs for the fiscal year ending March 2012 are estimated to be approximately 14 billion yen, which in U.S. dollars is $171 million, on the consolidating operating income level. This is what Sony is calling a reasonable assumption. The reason that this estimate is put out there and it's so high is because of the Welcome Back program, the identity theft program that they had to put into place, in addition to that customer support, and quote-unquote network enhancements and legal attacks. So Sony's definitely taking a huge hit, and they're expecting a $3.2 billion loss for their fiscal year. These PSN attacks have definitely fucked them up, folks, and it's it can only get worse if they don't do something to put the kibosh on that sooner rather than later, especially because people are so concerned with their information getting out that Sony's going to need a lot of money to make this go away. Earlier this week, I haven't put it on the site yet, but of course it's, it's, a, it's the worst kept secret that Modern Warfare 3 will be coming out soon. It's going to be released November 8th. And based on the trailer I saw, the combat comes home, and one of the things that have raised a lot of eye, a lot of eyes, so to, a lot of eyebrows, so to speak, ugh, too much Coke Zero, um, is the fact that you will be fighting terrorists in New York, and um, it's going to be taking place near Ground Zero. Of course, given what happened here with 9/11, it's it's a little touchy to go that route, but in regards to gameplay and presentation, as always, it looks solid, but is it is it really innovating? You know, fighting in Manhattan and fighting in the streets and, you know, doing urban combat, has it has it lost its luster in my eyes? Because honestly, while I applaud them for putting this out and, you know, giving Modern Warfare fans a new title to play, does, does it hold the same value? Because for me, I think that it's just the same game with, you know, a prettier coat of paint. That's how I see it. I know a lot of people are feeling the same way with regards to that. And, you know, De Silva mentioned in the chat that you get to kill Osama bin Laden. Knowing, knowing what I know from what I've seen of the game, I wouldn't even doubt that they make that some sort of a bonus mission to allow you to use, you know, SEAL Team 6 to kill 
the leader of whatever terrorist faction you're fighting in the game. I wouldn't. I would not put it past them to do that. So we'll find out November eighth. And while it is something that brings a, a couple of chuckles, it, considering the real world appeal and bringing the war to the United States and going into urban combat, they will probably touch on that in some shape, way, or form. So I'll be watching this story closely, and I'm sure they're going to put out more video closer to its release date, which will be, as I said before, November 8th. I know a couple of you guys still have Dead Space 2 collecting dust in the corner, but you'll be able to blow the dust off of that and throw it back on your console because there will be some multiplayer releases in a couple of weeks. The Outbreak Map Pack, which is going to include new maps, the Academy, and the Concourse are going to be available May 31st on Xbox 360 and June 3rd on the PS3. Well, now that we've avoided the apocalypse and are moving forward, 2K decided to announce that Duke Nukem has gone gold. Duke Nukem Forever is officially gold and will be released June 10th worldwide and June 14th in North America. So, everybody that thought that it wasn't going to see the light of day and that the world was going to end before the Duke made his way to next-gen consoles, rest easy because it has gone gold, and you'll be able to bring the Duke home June 14th. I know a couple of the RPG fans that listen to the show are going to enjoy this bit of news. A PSP remake of Persona 2 Innocent Sins is going to be released this fall. The original game appeared on the PlayStation, but never made its way to North America. This remake is going to feature the original game, plus new side quests, a new interface, and an optional new soundtrack by Shoji Maguro. So keep an eye out. For that this fall. In some, in some acquisition news, Gamefly, who you all know is the video game rental service, has announced the acquisition of Direct to Drive. This purchase is going to allow Gamefly access to over 3,000 PC and Mac games. IGN will hold a minority equity stake in Gamefly, but will have no direct role in the operations. Gamefly will now be able to offer a complete library of physical and digital games for the Mac, PC, and consoles in one place. So keep an eye out for that. Being able to rent Mac and PC games from Gamefly should be interesting. I may even be tempted to try out a few myself, but we'll see how that deal unfolds. But Direct-to-Drive now is officially part of Gamefly. In some news that I'm sure Slick will be happy about, and so will other 3DS owners, Sega announced recently that Shinobi will be debuting on the 3DS. It will maintain its 2D side-scrolling action, but will add some 3D elements as well. Shinobi 3DS will follow Jiro Musashi as he becomes a true ninja legend by mastering a brand-new combo, uh, brand combo system, switching between melee, ranged, and acrobatic attacks. The release date for the game is going to be September of 2011. Sega has released a debut trailer, which you'll probably be seeing on MyTakeRadio.com later this evening or at some point during the day Friday. Last but not least, a new PlayStation. I said that at the opening of this week's broadcast, and I'm not kidding. Today, during an investment call, Sony confirmed that they are, in fact, in the development stages of a successor for the PlayStation 3. When questioned about the rising research and development costs, Executive VP and CFO uh, Masaru Kato had the following to say. In the game segment, we have the NGP to launch later this year, so we have development expenses to be incur incurred for this product, he explained. 
for the home console, the PS3 still has a product life. But this is a platform business, so for the future platform, when, when we will introduce the product, I cannot discuss. But development work is underway, so the costs are incurred there. So for those of you that are thinking that you'll see a, a new PlayStation 4 in 2012, don't, don't hold your breath. Your, your PlayStation 3s are going to have a nice long shelf life, especially with Blu-ray being a factor, and you probably won't see a, a PlayStation 4 till at least 2013, 2014, if the world hasn't exploded in a giant ball of fire by then. But that's going to wrap up the gaming news. I'm going to take a quick commercial break, and when we get back, we're going to talk movie news right after this. What are we talking about? Tonight at 10 on your local news. I said to Jesus, Jesus, can you say this is the deal of the century, people? I'm telling you. So, Jason, uh, what, what, I mean, what, what are we doing tonight, tumbling with Tumbleweed, Tuesday nights at 10 p.m., blogtalkradio.com, Eastern Standard Time? Do you even know? Jason? Jason, are you there? Let's talk some movies. First off, and in a bit of what-the-fuck movie news and sequel news, you obviously know that Bridesmaids is currently in theaters. Based on what's been said thus far that I've heard amongst some of my friends and just reading on the web, it's pretty decently funny. And, of course, with The Hangover 2, you know, the male equivalent of Bridesmaids, we have a one-two punch of comedy for the male and female demographic. As such, it was obvious to me that with the successful opening that Bridesmaids had, guess what we were going to see? A sequel. Yes. Bridesmaids director Paul Fage said that he is in talks for a sequel, which had a $26 million opening weekend. When asked further, he said, who knows? I mean, it depends on how we do in the next couple of weeks, but I know there's definitely, it's already, that it's all, it's definitely already been brought up. So, you know, when you get a group that's this deep and this good, it's a crime to not use them again. You just want to make sure that what you do, that when you do it, it is as well as when you did the first one and you try to make it better. So we are up for the challenge. With that said, this is the problem with ensemble comedies like this, and it's happened with The Hangover, uh, Bridesmaids, any movies involving Ben Stiller and fucking Owen Wilson. The fact remains that sometimes capturing that sort of magic, even... um. Uh, Will Farrell is a great example. Even when you capture that sort of magic with an ensemble cast, lightning does not always strike twice, and sometimes doing a sequel may do more harm than good. A lot of people have been telling me that they've seen The Hangover 2 already, and they feel that it's pretty much the same story as Part 1, which in my eyes just screams lack of originality and lack of, of character development because you can do so much more but you want to go the easy way and just do a sequel where you pretty much lose another guy and hilarity ensues. I don't think that going this route with something like Bridesmaids is going to be 100% successful, only because the, this was one of those things where it was a, a one-shot deal. Will you be able to get that sort of success on the second go-around? 
the, the, the honest side of me says absolutely not. But given that Hollywood has a way of fucking this up and, and, and sticking, you know, the viewers in the ass, they'll find some novel approach or a catchy way to deliver a trailer that are going to make you want to go and check this out. But with that said, let's talk some box office totals, and I will tell you that it is a no-brainer to think that Pirates of the Caribbean was not going to run away with the box office spot, which it did. $90 million opening weekend. While it is the lowest opening um, for a Pirates franchise since the first film, it has a huge foreign gross of $256 million as well. That means in total, it has made $346.5 million in the first weekend worldwide off a $250 million budget. That is insanity. Coupled with the fact that you have IMAX and 3D ticket prices, again, I applaud this movie for being well done and successful, but when you factor in the high cost of 3D and IMAX, you really should add an asterisk to all these box office totals ever since this new resurgence of 3D and IMAX ticket prices have come to pass. Going down the list, Bridesmaids stayed at number two, $21.1 million. Um, it was a 19.9% drop from the first weekend. It's made $59.5 million domestically and $60 million worldwide on a $32.5 million budget. So, you know, it's considered successful. Fast Five dropped to number three, holding on $10.6 million. It's made $186 million. Worldwide, it's made $506 million. It's easily the highest-grossing film of the year on both fronts, and that's with a $125 million budget. Rio was number five. Priest fell two spots to number six. Um, huge 69% drop. Had a $23.7 million domestic gross, $50 million worldwide off a $60 million budget. I have a feeling that they're going to make up the difference on Blu-ray and DVD sales because I have a feeling that this is going to be one of those movies that you're going to want to add to your home video collection due to the fact that, you know, the, the quality of Blu-ray and the way the film was made is going to definitely help show off some of the strengths. It's visual strengths, I should say. Jumping the Broom dropped to number seven. Something Borrowed dropped to number eight. Water for Elephants was number nine. And Tyler Perry's Medea's Big Happy Family dropped to number 10. Film made $990,000, $51.8 million on a budget of $25 million. This is why Tyler Perry can continue to get movies made, because they are fucking made with pennies, and he hires, you know, actors that aren't going to command huge multi-million dollar salaries. 51, almost, almost $52 million on a $25 million budget. It's, it's insane. So just to recap, Pirates killed the box office, $90 million off the jump. Bridesmaids was two, Thor was three, Fast Five was four, Rio five, Priest was six, Jumping the Broom was seven, Something Borrowed was eight, Water for Elephants was nine, and Tyler Perry's Medea's Big Happy Family Bullshit was number ten. In some other news, and jumping off a little bit from the Fast Five box office totals, Vin Diesel actually gave an update to a new Riddick project, which is actually interesting because he's actually contemplating getting taking a pay cut to allow this next Riddick film to be made. I'm going to share with you guys Vin Diesel's statement. 
Uh, David Twathy, the writer, director, just landed in New York with the good news. We can start filming this summer. However, there is a catch. In order for us to make a true R-rated film, I must work for scale up front. Not unlike the Find Me Guilty experience, which he said in parentheses, which I wouldn't have changed for the world, money is always second to art, integrity, and spirit. But the real issue is deeper. Can I suspend my life to momentarily venture to that dark place called Riddick? Now I need to hear from our collective, you, the fans. He ended up closing it out with, I'm off to another meeting with David, the director of Riddick, to see concept art and discuss the potential schedule. Now, in a way, I read this statement I read the statement twice here at home, only because the first time I read it, I kind of felt that he was being uh, self-absorbed and believing his own hype. But then I read it again just as, as, a, as a fan of the Pitch Black franchise, and I really thought about it, and I said to myself, you know, a guy that's willing to get paid scale to see this movie series come to a, a conclusion, you know, it, it leaves something to be desired in, this, in the sense that it makes you interested in seeing what he wants to bring to the screen. The guy's willing to take a pay cut to bring this to the masses with his vision of an R-rated film. Um, I like the Pitch Black movies. I feel that the first one was the best. Um, the second one had a lot of really great moments. I felt that the, the character of Riddick actually lost his edge in the second one. He wasn't as cold and calculating as the first one. And to to be willing to take this pay cut to bring a third one to the fans, fuck it. I I applaud him for it. You know what? What the fuck else is Vin Diesel doing? You know, shitty kids films that people are going to watch and forget about? You're talking about a guy who, you know, he's he's got great movies in his his resume. If you want to see a great Vin Diesel movie, do yourselves a favor and watch A Man Apart. A Man Apart with uh, him, Lorenz Tate, was so well done. So ex- so well executed. It was gritty. It had great storytelling, and it really showed the, the depth of, of Vin Diesel as an actor. Don't get me wrong; he does a lot of popcorn flicks, and you know, in discussing that with uh, Jeff Katz earlier, I do agree there is a place for popcorn fare. Sometimes, like, and I've said this before, sometimes as moviegoers, we take ourselves way too fucking seriously because you know we do our homework and we're educated and we read a lot of IMDb and Wikipedia. But um, it is true, you have to, you really have to take a moment and just appreciate the movie for the entertainment value. And most Vin Diesel action movies, even the Pitch Black game, were enjoyable based on the fact that he really invested a lot of time and effort into this project. And hell, I'd see, I'd see another Riddick movie. I'd even see another Fast and Furious because, like I said, those are guilty pleasure movies that you don't need to expect Oscar-worthy filmmaking. You just need to sit your ass in the fucking chair, grab a a bowl of popcorn, and enjoy it. So I applaud him, and I will be watching very closely to see how this story develops. The next bit of movie news I want to talk about is about a book that I read a while back, which is so fantastic. I actually recommended it to Slick to read as well, and that book is World War Z. And the the premise of the book is basically a a large collection of stories um, told to a reporter regarding the war war between humans and zombies. And first off, I have to say that it was an epic, epic book, well-written, and um, it really gave you 
some insight into what the world would turn into if the zombie apocalypse really happened. And it was no fluff and no bullshit. There was, when you read it, you felt that you were there and you were experiencing this. You know, they, they referenced some stuff which you never would have thought about, such as, think about this, the zombie apocalypse happens, and, you know, what happens in the winter? How, do you, how can you survive the zombie apocalypse? One of the crazy things that they touched on in that particular story in the book was the fact that a lot of people were able to find shelter and move across states during the winter because the zombie bodies were frozen. And then in the spring, it was a bigger concern because the bodies would fall out and the bodies would reanimate. You know, little touches like that it set that book apart from, from countless other books that I've read. And to hear that it was coming to the silver screen, I was really excited. And Brad Pitt got involved, and he's producing it, and he's actually going to be the uh, playing the part of the reporter. And the film is picking up steam. There's already principal photography that's going to be done this fall, and the film is going to be shooting in Malta, the U.K., and Hungary. Again, I, if you haven't read World War Z, you can pick it up in paperback for six bucks. Like, epic, really well written, and, and just an awesome book to read. I, like I said, I recommend you guys check it out. Six dollars in paperback. Pick it up on your Kindle. Read it on your iPad. But I guarantee you, you will be entertained. In some Wolverine movie news, now that Darren Aronofsky is out of the picture, there's actually a short list of directors that are possibly going to be involved. The directors listed thus far are Jose Padilla, Doug Lyman, who did Mr. and Mrs. Smith and The Born Identity, Antoine Fuqua, who did Training Day in Brooklyn's Finest, Mark Romanek, Justin Lin from Fast Five, Gavin O'Connor, James Mangold, who did Walk the Line in 310 to Yuma, and Gary Shore, who's known for doing primarily television commercials. Based on this list of directors, um, if you want to go with something gritty and dark to focus on Wolverine in Japan, out of all these directors, I would probably go with Antoine Fuqua, uh, especially with the great work he did with Training Day and, and, you know, the character, Denzel Washington's character. I've always felt that the Wolverine character is portrayed a little too nice in the movies. Wolverine is gruff, violent, a womanizer, a heavy drinker, loves his cigars, he likes to indulge in, in you know, in, in, in his fair share of brawls and fights. And I just don't think that the movies do that particular side of him justice because they're too busy worrying about getting toys out to the masses. The character of Wolverine, for those of you that have read comics for as long as I have, you know is a very violent character that every time you see him watered down, you lose respect for the character from the silver screen point of view. I think Antoine Fuqua, Doug Lyman also to an extent, because he did such a great job with the Born Identity, would do great work. Now, if you're going along the, the popcorn movie mindless action genre, then of course Justin Lin would be my pick, but he's all over the place right now. You know, he's being rumored to be doing Terminator, so I wouldn't put him behind a project like this only because the level of expectation is going to be huge, but a guy like Antoine Fuqua would be great only because he can do that really dark uh, dark and gritty storytelling. I, I really think that the Wolverine character deserves that, especially in Japan if you want to go with the Silver Samurai storyline and the involvement of the hand and, um, you, you know, just that aspect of Wolverine's life and just walking around with, with no memory of your life and dealing with the Yakuza. 
Fuqua would be my number one choice for that. Um, moving on, they actually released a, a couple of uh, casting news for the Total Recall reboot. Yes, I talked about this in a, past, in a couple of past episodes. Uh, the Total Recall film is getting redone. Thus far, they've casted Kate Beckinsale and Jessica Biel to the cast. That is also including Colin Farrell, Brian Cranston, and Bill Nye as well. Filming has already st- filming is already in place to begin Monday in Toronto, and it is set for an August third, two thousand and twelve release date. Bill Nye will be playing Quato, if you can believe that. Uh, Kate Beckinsale is playing Laurie, and Jessica Biel will be playing Melina. The villain is going to be played. Uh, by Brian Cranston, and of course, Colin Farrell will be playing the role made famous by Arnold Schwarzenegger, that being Douglas Quaid. So, I don't know how I feel about it. I think a Total Recall reboot is unnecessary. I honestly think it's going to fucking bomb terribly, but hey, we'll wait and see. But I'm ju- I just feel that this film is one of those films that did not need a reboot, period. Now, the last two bits of movie news to wrap things up. Deadline has reported that Albert Hughes, who was the director for the live-action Akira, has left the project. Sources are saying that the move was over amicable creative differences. The studio wants to keep the film on track and to find a new director as soon as possible. The studio has also reportedly been wrestling with the approach on the film for the past year. Deadline reported also that there have been issues casting Kaneda and Tetsuo. They released an article which elaborated on it further, and I'll read you guys an excerpt. Last March, Warner Brothers put together a short list of up-and-coming actors after getting a strong rewrite by Stephen Cloves. At the time, Robert Pattinson, Andrew Garfield, and James McAvoy were given a script for the role of Tetsuo. Pay attention, you guys. Garrett Hedlund, Michael Fassbender, Chris Pine... Justin Timberlake, and get this, Joaquin Phoenix were courted for the role of Kaneda. The two leads were expected to come from that group of actors. Then the studio had a change of heart and, given the budget, wanted to have an established box office star in the movie. This led to the flirtation of Keanu Reeves, which ended recently. Now, pay attention to this. Akira is an anime that takes place in Neo Tokyo, in Japan. Which one of these actors is the least bit Asian? Hmm, none of them. What the fuck would Robert Pattinson have brought to the role of Tetsuo? That fucking sawtooth motherfucker couldn't act his way out of a paper bag. His shiny vampire shit is the only thing he's good for. I saw a little bit of, of his work and from Water for Elephants and some of his other films... It stinks. Stinks. What the fuck could he have done for a role like Tetsuo's character, which is a tortured, a tortured character in Akira? What? And James McAvoy is too fucking old. He's too old and, and frankly, too white. You really need Asian actors or at least get some Hawaiian actors or Samoan actors. Do something, but at least try and keep it remotely close. Holy shit! And then, for the role of Kaneda, Garrett Hedlund, Michael Fassbender, really? Chris Pine? Get the fuck! And, and the worst, the worst, Joaquin Phoenix. Kaneda is a young dude. 
Joaquin Phoenix looks like my fucking boss. Forty something, my my forty year old boss. Are you are you are you fuckers serious in Hollywood? You fucking rat bastards. Have you not watched Akira? Have you not seen that it fucking is an anime in Japan? You fucking cum guzzling shit dicks. Really? No wonder people complain about whitewashing. Look at your fucking casting choices, you stupid motherfuckers, you. I would rather the film get shelved completely and I can just rest on the fact that I own the anime than see this shit, this whitewashed horse shit that they expect you to pay money for. They're out of their fucking minds. I sincerely hope this project fucking never gets off the ground. Ever. Robert Pattinson? Fucking Andrew Garfield who's playing Spider-Man? Are you, are you kidding me? And, and I see that, that Don Mega from Future Endeavors in there, which you can listen to on Sundays on the Blog Talk Radio Network. He's in the chat, and he said, it's, you know, it's based on box office money, and nobody will see it with a bunch of Asians. And, you know, I agree, I agree with that to an extent, but if, if you want to give the source material justice, let me tell you, I'd rather the movie not make a ton of money, uh, not make a ton of money, but be enjoyable and true to the book as best as, or the, or the source material as best as possible than seeing some whitewashed piece of shit like Dragon Ball Z that all it does is just shit on the legacy of something which is considered so good. Look at the live action Dragon Ball Z flick. Just, just t- think about it. Let me tell you something. I'd rather watch shit porn than that new Dragon Ball Z movie. It is complete and utter shit. I'd rather watch a scat film. I'd rather watch a fat woman shitting on a glass table with Sylvester Stallone laying underneath it. Seriously. There's more residual entertainment value in that than a whitewashed Akira. There's no necessity for it. If you can't take the time to at least give the source material a chance, then don't waste your time fucking it up. Does the same rules apply with Dragon Ball Z? You want to know how Dragon Ball Z would have been successful? You could have done it. You could have had Pixar do a Toy Story-type Dragon Ball Z film, and it probably would have been a thousand times better. This is the problem. I think that Hollywood is so enamored with doing live-action anime films that they, they, they just can't get it right. Why not use other mediums? Why not use, you know, DreamWorks or Pixar and do something in that style? Imagine a Dragon Ball Z story or a Dragon Ball Z film done by Pixar or by DreamWorks. Same level of violence, same character development, but at least you can do the characters that are representative of the roles that were originated in Japan. It's that simple. You want to do Akira good and you want to do justice? There's plenty of great studios out there that can do CGI um, versions of this film and do a, a really great job. You're gonna, you'd rather do a whitewash film that is going to be met with criticism across the board, much like it's been done already. But no, we want to get the money. You're not going to get shit because what's the use of saying you're doing it for the money when nobody's going to go and see it? Think about it. We're going to make this great movie based on this Japanese anime. It costs $250 million to make. Awesome special effects. But whitewash actors that don't have any necessity to be involved in this project, no one's going to see it. No one. Period. But they want to go forward with it, and I guarantee you it is going to fail. And lastly, 
David O. Russell, who I told you was involved in the Uncharted film, not anymore. Variety reports that David O. Russell has amicably left the project due to creative differences. The studio is looking for a new writer now, and Mark Wahlberg's status as Nathan Drake is up in the air. Look, that guy got so much flack from gamers in regards to his vision of Uncharted that I, I'm surprised he left this late in the game. Plus, creative differences. You wanted to turn the Uncharted franchise into a family film with, with you know, the crazy uncle that helps the, the Nathan Drake hunt for treasure. That's not the way it goes. Just like I said with Akira and countless other movies, Hollywood, you fucking bastards, use the source material. Uncharted, for those of you that have played it on the PlayStation 3, is a movie in it of itself. You can recreate that on film, frame for frame, and I guarantee you that you can get a nice 90-minute to a two-hour film that people will gladly buy. Easy as that. And I agree with, with what Don Mega said. Nathan Fillion all the way as Nathan Drake. All the way. One, because he did the role for the game. Two, he probably can be paid substantially less than a guy like Mark Wahlberg. And three, he has an understanding of the character that fucking Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch does not have. Period. You watch Uncharted, you play Uncharted 1, you play Uncharted 2, you see the quality that's there. You see it. It's just the fact that the source material writes itself. It writes itself. And Hollywood just, you, you motherfuckers disgust me. You do. Every time with your reboots and your horse shit. And Slick makes a valid point. He always says I give him a lot of shit because he rages on Transformers. And his rage and my rage are different, not because they, they aren't passionate, because we're passionate for different reasons. I'm just passionate at the, at the fact that the source material writes itself. That's my biggest gripe. They want to reinvent the fucking wheel. Think about it. You play Uncharted. Very easy. Nathan Drake, we need you to find this artifact. The game progresses. You got your action sequences, you got your double crosses, you got your great special effects. Simple as that. But I think that it's all about at this point just let's slap a name on a film and watch the bankroll come in from 3D and IMAX releases. And yes, Slick, your, your rage is similar to mine. I, the, only, the only thing, like I said, that just separates us is that my, my gripes on the source material are, you know what, fuck it. You're right. They are the same. They are. Because looking at it from a broad point of view, you're right. They are the same. Slick, when Slick gets on, you know, the, the, the Transformers arguments, I understand because, again, his, his, you know, respect to the source material is front and center. We differ with regards to Transformers because I just look at the shit like a fucking popcorn movie. I've, I've pretty much separated Michael Bay's Transformers from cartoon Transformers. I just think of it as like a fucking spinoff, much like every other cartoon we've seen in the last couple of months. That way, I don't feel offended when, you know, if it's not the way it works out. But again, this is the way I view the movies. You know, that, that's what makes 
the parallels between myself and the staff so great because they look at the movies a little differently than what I do. My my arguments stem more so from the fact that these that these guys they they're they're given the game, they're told, "Hey, this is what you're working with." Nathan Drake's character does this 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 and this, this this and this and the director, he just turns around and goes, "You know what? I'm just going to make a family film. Why? Because I fucking can. No, you stupid motherfucker, you can't. Because the gaming audience are the ones that are going to drop the money to see this come to life. Prince of Persia, I read an infographic today. Prince of Persia is the highest grossing video game film to date. One of the reasons why I felt it was successful was it kept pretty much most of, of the source material intact. Of course, they took a lot of liberties. Of course, Chesty Jake Gyllenhaal is far from fucking Arabic. He's not, definitely not. The female lead had a, a, so much bronzer on that I was waiting to see if, a, if, rain, if it would rain at any point and it would drip off her face. But, again, the whitewash was in full effect, but the message was still there. Yeah, the whitewashing was fucking bullshit because it's like, yeah, hey, Jake Gyllenhaal, lay in this tanning booth for a week. But, um, again, whitewashing in Prince of Persia, same thing happened. A lot of people complained about it. Now, they, there is a merit with that because the whitewashing was fucking terrible because Gemma Arterton's whitewash for her character was embarrassing because it's like, yo, how are you Persian with fucking freckles? What Persian person do you know has fucking freckles? Holy shit. It's like, it's like yeah, she's cute and she's attractive, but... When I can see your fucking freckles through the bronzer, you guys have fucked up. You really have. You mean to tell me that there's not a, you know, a, a decent uh, dark-skinned actress that could have played that role? You, it, really? There's not one. There's not one. I, I, I watched the movie, and it's funny because I watched Prince of Persia on Blu-ray a couple of weeks back, and I'm like, fuck, look at her freckles. Like, when we saw it in the theater, it wasn't as noticeable, but, you know, you look and you're like, wow, she has freckles. Like, Chesty Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, you tan that motherfucker a little bit, and, you know, I'll let it rock. But, yo, the, 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 the chick, uh, you know, Gemma Arterton, it's like, your freckles are so fucking obvious. I, was, I had to chuckle at least five times because she's trying to hide, like, her English accent, but yet be Persian, and it's like, yo... You're, you're sitting there trying to deliver these lines, and you're, you know, it's like, I'm not telling you to be, you know, Durka Durka and shit, but it's like, well, you know, Prince, blah, 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 bitch, you're supposed to be Persian, and you sound like I should be having tea and crumpets with you in the desert. What the fuck? <laughs> Holy shit. And yes, I took it there. I did, I did say Durka Durka and what, you know. It, it, anybody who's offended, fucking laugh. Laugh it off, you fuckers. But seriously, it, you know, her English accent was so, was so there that I just couldn't help but chuckle. She's like, oh, you're so foolish, Prince. Can I have a crumpet? Oh, we have to watch William and Kate's wedding. Oh, my God, the sand serpents are going to eat us. I'm like, yo, what the fuck, man? Get out of here with that shit. See, I, I bitch about the whitewashing, and it's true, but when it's so blatantly obvious that the person that you cast just doesn't fit, I got to shit on you. Highest grossing movie, yes. Close to the source material, yes. 
choice in leading ladies, horseshit. Really, it's like it's like wow. It's like oh, Prince, get the dagger. And even even in in one part, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal is like, I want the dagger. It's like there's no there's no you know there's no you know my name is Hasim, my friend. There's none of that. And yes, you know, I had to throw some Apu in there for for comedic effect. But seriously, there's no there wasn't any attempt to create any sort of accents from 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 Persia. Oh my God. And I had to I had to put that out there. So, you know, David O. Russell coming in and saying, oh, you know, there were creative differences, yes, because Uncharted is far from a family film. If you want to do Uncharted and gear it towards families, you got to do it in the same style as the game, but you got to do it larger than life like Pirates of the Caribbean. You see how Pirates of the Caribbean is larger than life and, you know, in a way makes, takes, a, ma- takes a couple of liberties in making fun of itself. you got to do that with Uncharted. you got to make it fun exciting but keep the elements of the game intact you know when i heard that you were possibly going to see joe pesci in there or robert de niro i said what the fuck is this a sequel to the departed like i can imagine nathan nathan drake going hey sully i need you to get the car sully get the car you know like like no nathan drake is not from boston there's no get the car there's none of that there's none of that. I got to get the car so we could go get the treasure. Like, no, no, that's not what we're fucking doing. No. Mark Wahlberg is not Nathan Drake, period. So let's just get past that and accept it for what the fuck it is. Hollywood, I, again, I say to every couple of episodes, do yourselves a favor, please. Please. Read some comic books. Play some games. Learn your shit before you choose to rape the shit that I enjoy. Please, just do that. Read a couple of comic books. Before I close things out, a great example is Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr., of course, has played Iron Man in Iron Man 1, Iron Man 2, Tony Stark in Incredible Hulk. He will be Iron Man in The Avengers. You know what was the biggest biggest thing that showed me that this guy was going to be great? Him walking out of a comic book store with a stack of comic books that must have been at least $300, Avengers and Iron Man. And he was walking out, and paparazzi captured him. They're like, oh, look at Robert Downey Jr. coming out of a comic store. You want to know why Robert Downey Jr. is that, that guy, that hardcore motherfucker? Because he went to the comic book store and said, hey, I need to play Tony Stark. Let me read what the fuck Tony Stark does, instead of pretending to be Tony Stark in my own unique way. That's the kind of shit that actors need to do. Do your fucking homework. Nothing is more embarrassing than, hey, so-and-so, did you play the game before you decided, nah, you know, I saw a couple of videos and stuff, but I didn't really play it. Then, then of course your movie's going to suck, you fucking assholes. You can even Google it. Google Robert Downey Jr. comic book store, and you'll see the photo of him coming out with a nice fat stack of comic books. And that's why Robert Downey Jr. is that guy. Hugh Jackman, same thing with Wolverine. He did his homework. Sure, X-Men Origins Wolverine could have been substantially better. It was definitely a popcorn flick, definitely geared toward, geared toward you know, selling toys. But again, the guy himself did his homework to look the part of Wolverine. He, got, he tried to get the hair down as best as possible, all that shit. And, you know, to quote Don Mega from Future Endeavors, Robert Downey Jr., Tony Stark equals winning. And you know what? That is the truest fucking statement there is. 
Robert Downey Jr. gets it. Edward Norton, when he played the Hulk, he got it. Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man, with the exception of shitty-ass Spider-Man 3, he got it. All these guys that do their homework and, and take pride in the characters they're playing, they get my utmost respect. Do you really think that Robert Pattinson is going to stop having sex with, the un, with, the, with that uncharismatic chick that plays the lead in Twilight to watch Akira? No. He's going to be too busy chasing paparazzi away from his house and trying to keep Kristen Stewart extra happy because, you know, that chick is one, one, one sad moment away from killing herself anyway. So <laughs> um, definitely please do your homework, Hollywood. That's all I ask. All right, folks. That's going to wrap things up for this installment of MTR. You've just heard My Take Radio episode 93 for Thursday, May 26, 2011. If you'd like to be a guest on My Take Radio or have any questions or concerns, you can email me at mtrhost at mytakeradio.com. Or you can also, if you want to be a guest, hit up my fiance Andrea, who does our guest booking on Twitter. It's at Andrea underscore MTR. Or you can also hit up Slick at MTR Slick as well, and he will relay the message to me via Twitter. In addition to that, you can follow the show on Twitter. It's My Take Radio. And you can follow my personal account. It's MTR underscore Rich on Twitter. In the wasteland of MySpace, we are still there, folks. MySpace.com slash MyTakeRadio. And last but not least, our Facebook fan page. We are well on our way to 1,000 fans. Every little bit helps. If you think there's somebody out there that would want to check us out that loves MMA, video games, movies, and pro wrestling, tell them to check us out. Become that 1,000th fan. We are almost there as we continue our march to episode 100. Last but not least, if you're using Get Glue, make sure to check in. Check in on Get Glue. Show your support. You may be gaining some stickers in the future. You can bank on it. Last but not least, My Take Radio has apps in the iTunes Store, and in the Android Marketplace. They're $1.99, and you can get access to exclusive content, the first of which is going to be the MTR Behind the Mic series with my guest, my first guest, which is Michael Manna, who you may know as former ECW, TNA, and WWE wrestler Stevie Richards. He is the host of the T4 show, and you can catch his show Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on T4 Show. Dot com And you can check him out on Twitter as well, at Michael Manna. That episode will be on the app probably later on this, this evening, later on Friday evening or early Saturday morning once the editing is completed. In addition to that, you can also check out the app-exclusive Minority Film Report. Slick has been doing a great job uh, holding down the fort with that, so you can see future installments of the Minority Film Report on our respective apps for Android and iTunes. All right, folks, I will see you guys next week when I will be joined by stand-up comedian Robert Kelly. Catch you guys later. Taking us out this week will be the music for Kratos from the OC Remix Heroes and Villains soundtrack. The artist for that... Oh, shit, did it even... I don't think it uploaded. Oh, man, that sucks because I really wanted to play that. Damn. All right. I guess that kind of fucks things up, and I apologize. Um, instead, you will be taken out by another Heroes and Villains track for the Ryu stage, and it's Satsui no Koto, and the artist is Zircon and Josh 
Morse. Catch you guys next week. I'm out. Peace.